Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Everybody and welcome to another episode of There's Still Time, the AFTN Soccer Show. I'm your host Michael McCall and I'm joined tonight by a motley crew. We're joined by Zachary Adam Meisenheimer. Hello Michael. Steve Pander. Adios Michael. Adios, that means goodbye. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to speak Spanish in high school. Uh And Stephen Egan, all the way from sunny... Misty, foggy, some kind of Seattle. Thanks for having me. Glad to join you from smoggy Seattle here. Yes, and you, of course, out of the four of us, was the only person that was actually at that game tonight. You have my sympathy, except you're not a Whitecaps fan, so I guess congratulations. Uh, Well, thank you. Frankly, you know, there's not much more atmosphere there than there is watching it on television. Uh, But, you know, great to be at the stadium, a great privilege, and uh, another interesting derby in the book. Are you allowed to cheer at the stadium now that there's no supporters there? We actually had a guy do it today, and, and oh. everybody kind of looked at him and was like, oh, well, you know, at least we heard something. <laughs> well, we're, we're going to be talking about, obviously, the big derby game of the week tonight. Um, and that big derby game comes on Tuesday when East Fife season kicks off against Cowdenbeath. To celebrate that, I am wearing my No Soap in Cowden t-shirt. And away from the numbers original, dating back to the early 90s. We, we made 10 of those, and I actually sold those outside Cowdenbeath Stadium and lived to tell the tale. <laughs> we might do some more, because I, I was airing that and my Cowden family one on our East Fife show, and it seemed to go down well with the new East Fife captain, so we might be getting some new ones going out. But we, we might touch on East Fife later. We're going to talk a lot of white caps. We're going to talk some MLS. We're going to look at the Gold Cup draw and whatever else we can throw in. We don't know how long this one's going to go. This is also going to be our podcast recording for episode 412. Now, we didn't do a show last weekend, partly because I just could not be arsed. Before we get into the Seattle game and all the other stuff, let's quickly recap the two games that we didn't because I... What I thought we'll do is TSN Radio kind of do a match in a minute. So I'm going to try and do the LAFC game in a in the case of a minute. And then we'll try and do the Portland game in a minute and then just briefly talk about it. So LAFC, the game kicked off. It was over pretty quickly. 5-0 by about the 14th minute. Or was it 4-0? I kind of started to lose counts. Uh, at some point, it got to the time in LA was 5 past Meredith. And... Everyone then is starting to look up, 
what was going to be the the worst ever Whitecaps defeat. Well, we know it was 6-0 in Kansas City. Then it was going to be what could be the worst ever MLS defeat. Could the Whitecaps be history makers? Sadly, we didn't even get that because either we shut up shop or LAFC just couldn't be bothered scoring anymore. One or the other. Finished 6-0. It was a shellacking. And yeah. I was worried going into the Portland game that it was going to be another thrashing, especially when they went 1-0 down after four minutes. But they held on and they did have their chances. And that's a common common thread I think we might talk about tonight. Lucas Cavallini creating chances, not putting them away. Other players creating chances, not putting them away. Ended up a 1-0 defeat. Two disappointing games, a lot of doom and gloom. You felt after that, oh, what's going to lie in store for the season? But going into tonight's game, just three points off the playoff places. Still in the mix with nine games to go. Got a chance to go home and visit family and friends. Revitalised, obviously, going to CenturyLink tonight. We'll come to that very soon. Steve, what what did you you make of those two games? Because we haven't had a chance to talk to you about them. Yeah, well, you gave me the uh, the night off from watching the LAFC game because you thought it might worsen my condition. Yes. Uh, so you, you beforehand you told me that. So uh, I didn't watch that one at all. But I did see the it kept buzzing on my phone the scores and everything like that. So I saw that it was not worth even catching later on. Um, but uh, the Portland one, yeah, just tight game. Uh, you expected to. You, you, you did, I didn't expect them to be in that game at all, but. Uh, they actually kind of had a good showing there, but overall, not very good. Two good games there. Yeah, the LAFC was, I mean, just hor- a horrific performance all around. And it, yeah, uh, the Portland <laughs> one. The, the Portland one. Uh, talk, let's talk a little bit more about that. I mean, yeah, it was one nil, but um, Portland heavily rotated, heavily rested the rest of their squad for that game. Yes, there was that. Yeah, I I, I, I heard. Um, I heard, so, I heard someone, I can't remember who it is now, kind of give the perspective that one of, one of Vancouver's issues is they, they, they can th- focus on defending well or trying to attack well, but not both in the same game. And I think that was the case in, in that game where, yeah, even though they created a few chances, uh, they did fairly well in defense. Um, but, but, you know, for whatever, the second or third game in a row, couldn't put anything on the board. But let's get to tonight's game, the Seattle game. I will point out as well that this episode is going to be marked explicit because the songs I'm going to be playing in the podcast is going to have swearing in it. So feel free to to swear about anything that happened tonight because it was fucking terrible, let's be honest. At least the second half was. Now, let's kick things off. 3-1 defeat, which on paper doesn't look too bad especially when you consider how that second half was going, it could very easily have been seven or eight. If Seattle had taken some of those chances, it was a case of squandered chances, missed opportunities, and some top saves by Brian Meredith. I will give him lots of credit for that. I mean, that could have really got out of hand, Stephen. Meredith had a very nice game. Um, You know, to, to, to start with the positives, I thought that Vancouver had a very, very good opening half. I thought that that went almost as well as possible. Let's talk about the mischance later. But aside from Mm -hmm. that, they really did awfully well putting two blocks of four behind the ball, uh, getting all 10 guys, all 10 outfield players behind the ball at times. 
uh, closed down space very well, made it difficult for Jordan Morris to get in behind. Um, at, at halftime, it felt like there was a path to nil-nil. And I, I think that's maybe the best thing you can say for Whitecaps on the night. Um, as you mentioned, almost almost everything else, hard, hard to find a positive in. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. I mean, when, when, the, when you saw the team, it wasn't an exciting team in some ways, but they got the front four out there that they wanted to have on the pitch. I had a hunch that MDS was going to go for 4-4-2. And Andy Rose then moved into the middle. I think he was playing because solely because Leonard Ebuso got injured and, and was missing out. I think it would have been Ebuso and Bikel otherwise. But, I mean, Cornelius and Godoy, Adnan back at left-back, Meredith and Goal was maybe the only surprise, but maybe Bush isn't fully up to, to match day yet. But when you saw that team, I don't think there's a lot more they could have maybe done. But maybe put Baldy in instead of Andy Rose, but Mark did talk afterwards that he felt he needed some experience in there because of how much experience was on the Seattle side. So that is kind of why he, he went for, for Rose. But... It was a decent enough lineup, and it was a de- decent enough first half. I, for Seattle, I thought Nicholas Ladero uh, in that first half was absolutely outstanding. Kava got that chance, point blank saved by Stefan Fryzak. That you feel if that had gone in, things may have been different. But that aside, it was another good opportunity for Kava that he didn't put away. And that's what DPs all around the league are putting away. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it feels like from a Whitecaps perspective that 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 is the one thing you can you can look at and say, oh, maybe that was the turning point. Like if we if Vancouver had scored then, then they could have, uh, you know, they could have um, maybe held on or or something or or or, or come into the game more than 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 they did on the whole. I think one of the interesting stats that TSN put on before the game, uh, you know, you know, with our good friend Naveed and, and others, we've been talking a lot about uh, the MDS era and the stats or whatever. One of the, the stats that MDS or that TSN showed before the game about the MDS era is that uh, in uh, games where uh, his side has not scored first, I think they have one win. I think it was yep. 19 losses and three draws, which, uh, which is really concerning, which makes a miss like that. Um, more, even more concerning. MDS was asked about that after the game. He didn't really have an answer for it. Neither did Andy Rose. It's a baffling stat. In the whole MDS era, one win when the team has fallen behind. Now, I mean, Stephen, you don't watch the team all the time, but you do follow the results, and you're used to watching a team like Seattle that when they fall behind, you, you feel they've got what it takes to get back into the game. We simply don't have that with the Whitecaps. When we fall behind, you kind of feel, oh, well, that's it, it's game over. Yeah, you know, I think what Zach said a moment ago uh, or a little earlier was was really uh, a great point. Whitecaps can attack or they can defend, but they can't do both, uh, certainly not in the same game. You know, it's just, it just doesn't seem to happen. It seems like after the first goal goes in, there's just, the, the game's done. Um, and, and, you know, maybe the best positive Whitecaps can take from this is it took Seattle longer to score three times in, in this one than it did in Orlando. Um, but it's just, I, I don't know. I go back to the Cavallini chance. I think that if you know that that's the setup, if you know that you're a big underdog, you know you're not going to create very many chances, you know you're going to sit in and absorb a lot of pressure, then when you have a golden chance like that, you just, 
you have to take it. And sure enough, there's not another one in the game that's as relevant for Whitecaps the whole time. Um, I, mm. to, to just talk about Seattle for a sec, I, I, I know you guys probably don't want to hear this, but they were bad in the first half. They were complacent. They didn't connect passes well. Um, they looked like they straight up took the Whitecaps for granted. Um, and Whitecaps very nearly made them pay for it. I, I was hoping they would, to be honest. I thought that Whitecaps were better in the first half and probably should have had a goal, uh, particularly through Cavallini, like we talked about. Um, but Seattle just, I mean, n- nobody beat anyone one-on-one in the first half. Uh, Morris couldn't get in, in behind at all. Nerwinski did, did way better today. Adnan did way better defensively than they did in Orlando. Um, but then Seattle looked interested in the second half, and it's, it's a different story. For the Whitecaps, for me, the the fact that I noticed it in this game and I noticed it in previous games, as soon as they let that first goal go in, there's a different mentality to the team on the pitch. Their heads go down. Even if they make a defensive play where they go, it goes for a corner, they're still their heads go down even if they're behind. It seems like they're almost defeated by that first goal. And and I I, I rarely ever see them where like it is obviously by the stats you gave that it's true that they don't come back from games. And I think it's, I think it's all mentality at this point. I mean, you're a goalkeeper, Steve. Are we being too harsh on Cavallini? Could he have done better there? Should we give Fry a lot more credit for making that save? Yeah, I think Fry deserves credit. The fact that he was able to get, you know, big and, and, and you know, spread out and get his feet on there. It was more of a reflection scene, but Cavallini still, and for him, it was almost like a reflex shot too. Um, he he had to react quickly to to the pass coming in. Obviously, top top of the line strikers probably would have got that, and I think that he he probably should have finished that, especially for a team that's desperate for goals. Don't get me wrong, Stefan Fry is a, is a top quality goalkeeper, especially in MLS. But I mean, that was virtually right at him. Like I mean, I think he would even by his standards, would not consider that a, a massive save beyond, you know, the, I guess maybe the situation. It's, it's, but it's about positioning too, Zach. If you're in the yeah. right position, you're going to oh. make that save. We're, look at look at a couple uh, couple of things Meredith did. He wasn't in the right position, and that's why the goals went in. Yeah. So the, but the thing is is also um, it, it, it says a big thing about the Whitecaps that if they miss that chance, that's the telling point of the story of the game. They can't If they don't get that goal – and they're not going to get any more chances than that. They're so concerned about missing one. So, yeah, full credit to him on his positioning. Um, but, again, because his positioning is in, let's say, the upper echelon of the league, um, yeah, it's right at him. But from a, from Cavallini's perspective, he should not be shooting so directly at where, where the keeper is. I mean, like, I, I know it was quick and all that, but, but you're right. I mean, he didn't pull a D-op or anything, so. <laughs> yeah. No. At halftime, I've put this in our match report, it kind of felt like a small victory for the Whitecaps because they'd gone in level against the, the leaders of the Western Conference. Now, the second half was getting under, about to get underway and my wife was, was going to take her, her dog out. Uh, so I, I said to her, oh, I hope the second half's pretty quiet so that I don't have too much to, to write about so I can get ready for, for the show later. So by the time she'd come in from walking the dog... There'd been four goals, a sending off that wasn't a sending off, and a sending off that was a sending off. Let's try and make some sense of this second half. 
Nice. Can I say? Can I say one thing? Yeah. That I I kind of appreciate the, the referees we had in um, in Canada a little bit more, <laughs> and even in the CPL games after this guy Tim, Timmy Smith or Tommy Smith or whatever his name was, he was atrocious. But for both teams, Timothy like there were some Ford, bad, bad, huh? Timothy I Ford, I think it was. Whatever his name, Timmy Ford. Smith. Uh, but for me, uh, but. But the, like even in the first half, with that uh, there was a foul that a Sounders player uh, did on a Whitecaps attacker just outside the box, which was a foul. And then you got Cavallini's one, which we'll talk about later. That mm-hmm. wasn't a foul. I don't understand where this guy's where this guy's head was at. I messaged you guys right at kickoff. Yep. He he called a foul right at kickoff, and then made Vancouver retake retake the yeah. free kick because he didn't like that they took it too quickly. You know, it was like I told you, it was like this is this is an interesting referee. Yeah, it feels it feels like he's used to U11s or something like that playing or something like that. Yeah, he was bad. He was poor. I tell you who else was poor: the Whitecaps defending for the first fifteen minutes of that second half. So it's one 0 down after I think it was about fifty-two seconds after the restart. Jake Narwinski does a clearance, which Zach put in our WhatsApp group. Oh, good clearance by Jake. And then seconds later, bang, the ball comes back in. Andy Rose doesn't close down Zhao Paulo. The ball goes through three Whitecaps defenders. That, it was beautifully struck, and it was struck with force. But you have to think one of those three defenders is going to throw his body at that ball and then, I don't know if Meredith was expecting someone to throw himself at the ball, but then he just got down. I think he could maybe have done better with that as well. It was a lovely finish. It was a lovely strike. After that, you thought, that's it. Game over. It felt like, you know you know how you have like a bride and groom go down uh, the pathway and the people put their swords up? It felt like that, the white caps, the way they were positioned, they allowed that ball right to go in between the defenders. It was well struck for sure. Uh, and I said that in our conversation that we were having during the game, it was well struck. But again, I think, I think Meredith will feel he should have got a hand to it and, and parried it around the post. But well, that's where positioning comes in. I felt like he was too close to the, that, that post, the, the left one, where he should have been more centered in the pitch. Even after all that time he spent with him, he's no Stephen yeah. Fry. Now, before we go any further, we're after 10 o'clock, so it's AFTN after hours. I'm stunned. The Stephen is the guy to have some pussy on the on the broadcast here. That was a big surprise. <laughs> you guys obviously missed that. <laughs> Stephen's cat got in the in the shop. Oh, I totally didn't see that. And my other question for Stephen is: Do you have some casks behind you? No, they're frisbees. It's embarrassing. I play frisbee oh. golf because I'm a nerd with very little life. That was your chance to say there were casks. What, what what is that other game that they play frisbee foot is it frisbee football or they have a different name for that too? I can't well, well, they play Quidditch. With ultimate, yeah, that's it. That's ultimate, ultimate frisbee. Yeah, yeah. Right. I I don't know. I've I've looked at disc golf and I've always thought it kind of looks a, a bit of a a fun game. I wouldn't mind trying it. Not just now because I've done something to my shoulder, but once my shoulder's back up and running. So I, are you the disc golf champion then? Steven. Oh, goodness. No, I'm not very good, but it's great exercise. And uh, frankly, it's a lot cheaper than playing actual golf for a college student in Seattle where we don't have uh, uh, the greatest collect, uh, selection of courses. You have to book quite a quite a ways in advance, um, and it's pretty expensive. Um, and this is free. It's wonderful. So I've, I've really enjoyed it. been playing for about a year now. Um, but anyways, I'm sorry, sorry about the whole cat incident and the, the mess oh, I've had look, here. Oh, look, I love looking at pussies on a Saturday night, so I'm totally fine by that. 
I have been watching a lot of Are You Being Served recently, which is a UK sitcom from the 70s that may or may not have been shown over here. And there's lots of innuendo in it. And one of the characters, Mrs. Slocum, uh, her famous thing was she was always going on about, I have to get home and sort out my pussy. Is is that the one that's in the in the in the shopping store? Yes, it's in a in yes, in a department store. Yeah, yeah, I remember seeing that. Yeah, Michael, no one finds it hard that you watched a show that had uh, a lot of euphemism in it. I, I think that's kind of that and the Carry On films has shaped the kind of person that I am today. That was one where one of the ladies had really blue hair or something like that. Yeah, that was Mrs. Slocum. That's the yeah, that's the woman that had the pussy as well. Yeah, she would she would do jokes like oh. It, she'd come in all rain, it'd been raining, and she'd be like, I'm sorry I'm late, but my pussy was so wet, I had to just dry it off. Great humour. You don't get that anymore. Different times, Zach. Different times. So it's 1-0, Whitecaps are down, and you think, yep, that's going to be the end of the game. But then things get worse, and it's an own goal this time. And Roldan sends the ball across the six-yard box. Meredith should have done better with that hand. Just palms it straight off Godoy's leg, into the back of the net. And I, I don't know what you saw in the, the stadium, Stephen, but on the, the TV, Godoy just had that resigned look off. Oh, here we go again. Too far away to see facial expressions in the stadium, but but close enough to see that that was game over for Whitecaps. Um you know, just going back to it, it seems like every inflection point in the match goes against Vancouver. The Cavallini miss, the goal at the start of the second half. You're still in it after that one, but then you give up another. It's just every time, right? And then even when something good happens, even when you get a penalty, right? Then immediately the next thing that happens, you go down to 10 men. And it's just, yeah. it's like, it, when you're a big underdog in a soccer game, you have to take the key events of the match make sure they go your way or there's no way for you to win right the, the one thing about the that goal it ended up being at that at that point that since they moved to the US whitecaps players have had scored two goals for their own team and three goals for the opposition oh really in, in the four games that they had played so that, at that point and obviously uh, we'll get to the the end score um, mm. of the, of that total yeah, i feel bad for the mobilio family they're going to be having handing out the, the Whitecaps golden boot to own goal this year um, <laughs> for the combined efforts. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, uh, Meredith did make some good saves. I think the, the third goal, if you want to say his position was not great on the second, the third goal, I think he, he, he just parries it to the like – he, he, he puts it back into the, a massively wrong spot. Whether or not it hit Godoy and went in or not, that was not where you want that, that ball to, to end up. And, like, he'll definitely not feel good about that. Well, I mean, Stephen talked about bad luck. The third goal comes off the back of Jordan Morris. That's the bad luck aspect. But then you get the bad marking aspect, whereas you've got the dangerous Rui Diaz all alone in the six-yard box, able to just go, boom, head home. They, 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 they had the positioning of a triangle around him with Meredith and Bikel behind him and Rose in front of him. So they had that positioning. It just wasn't tight enough. Um, I don't get zoning. I, 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 honestly, if I was a player on the pitch and they were told me to zone and I see Rio Diaz right next to me, like like three feet away, I'm going to move that extra three feet to get to him and be right beside him. I don't care what the coach says because I know that he's going to do something with that. So so zoning, I don't understand. They have to really get away from it and figure something else out. 
sorry, I messed up which goal was which, which goal there. But yeah, the, the, the Rui Diaz goal, yeah, is just is really poor. It was really poor marking. And I think MDS was talking about it after the game about how everyone is really comfortable with how they're approaching set plays. And it was like, well, it, it's, it, it hasn't really been working on the whole. So it feels they, like they, they need to relook at that. They're comfortable because they, they don't have to do anything. Yeah. They don't do anything, so they don't have to put any effort. That's why they're comfortable. As, uh, as the late, great Ziggy Schmidt said, space doesn't score goals. People score goals. Very true. The other thing as well is they're probably comfortable at training because they're defending white cap set pieces. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm really comfortable with that. We've managed to mop up everything and there's not been a goal conceded. So 58 minutes, it's 3-0. Let's be honest. Who thought we were on for another 6-0 shellacking? I certainly did. I thought, I thought it was gonna, you were, one of us was going to be asking what time it was for sure. I don't <laughs> yes. know about 6. No, I thought at that time the Sounders would take it, start taking it easy. I thought they would take the, you know, the foot off the pedal a little bit. In a vacuum, I would have probably thought that Seattle would start to sub people off and rest people for, you know, get, get, get minutes off of legs as quickly as they could. Frankly, the, the craziness with the penalty happened so fast that there wasn't really time to think about it. Yes. I do want to just mention one thing as far as the second goal goes. Uh, second goal goes. I've talked to a number of the Seattle radio broadcasters who swear that Meredith didn't touch the ball at all and that it only came off of Godoy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I, I, I was, haven't seen yeah. it again myself, but that's, that's what I've heard. So. Hmm. I'll look it up right now. I'll see if I can find it. At the very least, we can laugh at the Seattle radio if they got it wrong. So I, that's true. Although I, I do like Jackson. I don't want to laugh at Jackson. He gets me on his show. So. Oh, no, he's, he's my, one of my very closest friends. I know. But it's still fun to laugh. So Yes. And we have to laugh at something if we're a Whitecaps fan because otherwise it'd be all doom and gloom. Mark's post-game press conference was not a lot of fun, as you would expect. This seemed to really hurt and kind of cut quick, and he, he kind of came across as a a coach that's struggling for answers just now, and that, that's something we'll kind of come to later on. So it's 58 minutes, it's 3-0, then craziness happens, and we're going to get to that after this. Hi, I'm Mark Dos Santos, and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show.
Welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. And kicking off this part, it's the final song from AFTN's Artists of the Month for September. Yes, I know we're in October, but we never got our show last week, which means we never got to play our last song by Scottish band Arab Strap, so we're bringing you that tonight. And because tonight's show has actually got six parts, it's going to let us round off September's Artist of the Month, kick off October's Artist of the Month, and still have our three of a kind section. What more could you ask for? But that was the opening track from Arbstrap's fifth studio album, Monday at the Hug and Pint. That was a song called The Shy Retirer. And the album itself refers to a, a pub in Falkirk, where the band are from, the Hug and Pint Bar and Club. But it also spawned a, a live music venue in Glasgow as well, which was named after the album The Hug and Pint. So I hope you've enjoyed our selection from Arabstrap over the past few weeks, and I hope you're going to enjoy the band that is coming up. Kicking off part three, our new Artist of the Month here at AFTN for October. Who's it going to be? Find out soon. But let's get back to the football chat now. So we're back talking Whitecap Seattle. It's currently 3-0 after 58 minutes. And you're thinking, well, what is going to happen? Then, a lifeline and a life jacket are thrown to the Whitecaps. Yamar gets a red card. Penalty for the Whitecaps. Trying to make this as dramatic as possible. We're all sitting in our WhatsApp group going, how the fuck is that a penalty? A, it's outside the box. B, Kava pushed Yamar. C, it looked to me that Cavallini just dived as soon as he got into the box. And as soon as he went to VAR, we were all like, oh yeah, that's coming back. That's not a penalty. That's not a red card. Well, it wasn't a red card, but it was still the penalty, with the telling moment being Yamar's or Gomez, I don't know what he goes under, but let's go with Yamar. His trailing foot, I'm demonstrating this for radio, which is great, but we are on YouTube, so we'll do that as well. His trailing foot was out like this. Let's do this. And then catches Cavallini's foot, and Cavallini then seems to stumble. But the reason his trailing foot catches him is because Cavallini's barged him to begin with and sent him down to the ground. So for me, it should have been a Seattle free kick. I was more concerned with how long it was taken that Cavallini was actually going to get a second yellow for simulation at that point. Frankly, this was maybe the worst penalty call I've ever seen in person, to be completely honest. Um, Michael, I think everything you said about it was completely right, except for Cavallini initiated the contact with JMR, I think, at the end. Um, The whole thing is initiated in the beginning by Cavallini elbowing or forearming Yamar in the back and that's what causes him to stumble that's as Danny Jackson said tonight the initial domino that goes Um, but if you guys would like I actually have just received answers from the pool reporter um, from questions that I actually wrote myself believe it or not for the first time this is great what infraction caused you to call a penalty kick and send off Yamar Gomez was penalized for a tripping foul in the penalty area, which denied an obvious goal-scoring opportunity, dog so, and which the referee did not consider in real time involved an attempt to play the ball. 
What was discussed during your monitor review of the play? The video review enabled the referee to establish whether a foul took place, exactly where that foul took place, and whether the action of Gomez could be considered an attempt to play the ball. These were the factors that were considered during the review. And finally, what infraction occurred inside the area? After reviewing the footage at the, at the pitch side monitor, the referee maintained his opinion that a tripping foul had occurred inside the penalty area when the left foot of Gomez made contact with the right foot of Cavallini, and as such, he maintained his penalty decision. He could also see that Gomez had actually attempted to play the ball and had been close to, close to doing so just prior to the foul contact. As such, even though the actions of Gomez did deny an obvious goal-scoring opportunity, because it resulted in the award of a penalty kick and involved an attempt to play the ball, the correct outcome as per the laws of the game is a yellow card, and as such, the originally issued red card was rescinded and a yellow card was issued. This is, the whole thing is, is asinine. I agree, with, I agree with Michael's assessment. This is what we were talking about the whole time, is when, you, when VAR is used to determine a red card, a penalty, you know, the things it's allowed to do, it looks that it, it can go back as far as it's allowed to go back. And so for uh, the example I gave the guys in our chat was if someone is in an offside position and then fouled and the referee calls a penalty and VAR looks at it and they're like, oh, no, it's offside, then the penalty isn't given. And there's no way because you could even see over the referee's shoulder how, is he, how he's looking at, at the, the monitor and what he's looking at. He looked at the initial contact and how he couldn't decipher that that was a foul by Cavallini barging into the back of the defender. I don't want to mispronounce his name, but barging into his back that created the whole thing. And it wasn't stopped and a free kick given for that is like, is, is mind boggling. Like it, it, it is totally unacceptable that something like that can happen with a system like VAR. Also, it was Cavallini that was in on goal. So was it really a clear goal scoring opportunity with, with what we've seen from him in the last few games? I mean, uh, there is that as well. But it, for a referee to look at VAR and then come back and say, you know what? I've made two fuck-ups here that I have to correct. It would take a big referee to go, yeah, I balls that up twice. So I think he kind of went 50-50. Oh, yeah, I've only made one balls up. I'm not saying he was right, yeah. but... But this is why this is why I don't feel like the referee on the pitch should be making the car oh, yeah. call when reversing a VAR decision. It should be either the referee in the in the stadium, in the, in the studio, or whatever you want to call it, or somebody in a in a central location in New York where you get the top person, uh, whoever is in charge of all the refereeing and MLS making that call, and they could do that because there's not that many games going on. You have one person watching each game, and then you have a, a central person making that final decision. They've done it in other leagues. I, I feel like the referee on the pitch is going to be, uh, you know, you get uh, you, you get confronted or, or like saying that being told you're wrong. And obviously, in the moment when you're in the heat of the moment of the game, you're going to say, no, I wasn't wrong. I was right. Look, it's right here. You got to have fresh eyes looking at it and making that decision. Michael, it shouldn't matter. Like, this is not about how the referee comes off looking. This is I know, I was half, right, half right joking. I know, but I, I agree with you, Steve. And, and it, from my understanding, essentially that's how it's done in Germany, Steve. In Col the Col it's in Cologne, is the main center, and they often will tell the referee what it is. And I've even seen, I've seen multiple times in the Bundesliga where they don't even look at it. They're just like, oh, okay, yeah, no, that's, you know, I'm, whatever. 
Um, well, Germany comes up with the best solutions, obviously. That's how I would think if it ever gets introduced in the CPL, it should work. It's like it's done centrally somewhere in Toronto because you can't maybe have all the setups at all the individual stadiums for costs and stuff. So I, I think that would work. I'd be all for that in MLS. What's your thoughts on that, Stephen? Would you like a more centralized approach? I'm almost equally torn between the um, the continuity you get from having that type of centralized approach and the importance of having the center ref be able to have the final decision stay in his hands. Um, I, I guess I also want to mention that this wasn't VAR or video review justice for the Whitecaps tonight. I don't want to see them get a PK in a garbage, you know, in, in garbage time in a game where there's no result. We, we all know Whitecaps get screwed by VAR more than any other team in MLS. I, I want to see these things happen and even themselves out in games where Whitecaps take points as a result. Well, I, let, let's talk about the penalty just quickly as well. Your team is 3-0 down. You're a former player of the team that you're playing against, and you decide to do a Panenka. Now, I know Freddie Montero is a confident guy, but even I was like, oh, geez, Freddie, why on earth would you try that? But it worked. Was he trying to get bought out, hoping he would miss? <laughs> but, I mean, Montero scored, it's 3-1. The commentators here, Stephen, were, were going, oh, the Whitecaps can get back into this now. There's only two goals behind, they can really get back into it. Then three minutes later, they're down to 10 men. Bikel sent off. And now, I feel Bikel was a bit hard done to in one regard, in that I don't think that was a straight red. I think it's definitely a booking, which would have been a second booking, so he would have been off anyway. So I've no, no question about him going off. But I don't think that was a straight red, because I don't really know how much he knew about it. There wasn't intent. It was just an unfortunate... He went in, it was a bit late. I mean, did, did you... What was the consensus in the in the Seattle press box? Was it it was a straight red? I'm sure it's probably the same for you guys in Vancouver. Consensus is hard to get when you're so socially distanced. You know, there's yeah. not a lot of talking that goes on and that kind of thing. Um, I had a nightmare of a time with this one when I initially saw it. I thought that the referee had showed the red card to Svensson. Um, oh, and it took actually several minutes to figure out that it was not a Seattle player who'd been sent off. From my angle, I could only see Svensson's right foot come up high. And oh. I couldn't see either of Bikel's legs. And so I thought Svensson was sent off for a high boot and a firm challenge. And, and it took me a while to realize that it was actually Whitecaps who were down to 10 men. It was only when Seattle lined up for the free kick. Um, and so I wish I had more for you. Uh, having mm. seen the replay from behind the goal, I mean, if you plant, if you plant your studs on a guy's groin, then almost regardless, chances are you probably get a yellow card. For me, it was, uh, it, I, I kind of felt like, like it was almost like a, uh, and I, I know you're going to make some joke out of this, it was a bang-bang play. Um, uh, but for me, I, I felt like uh, it, 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 the intent definitely wasn't there. I felt uh, Eden Hazard had more intent when he kicked that uh, ball boy for Swansea <laughs> than, than this one. So I, I, I think the intent definitely wasn't there. I, I agree that obviously, even without intent, it probably is a yellow and he's probably going to get sent off. The first yellow, I don't recall it. Was there even a yellow there? I felt like he was uh, that. It was. It wasn't a pure yellow card either. I, th I thought that. Yeah, I, d I did think that booking that he got in the first half was a little bit harsh as well. But I mean, we've seen it with Bikel a couple of times. He's picked up a couple of bookings so far and a couple of early bookings. Cavallini's the same. He kind of plays with an aggressive streak, and MDS wants 
players that have that little bit of a aggression to them. It's the it's the whole fine lines thing of you don't want to go too much. And I thought Cavallini was lucky not to get a second yellow. He's missing from the next game anyway. But he flew into a tackle. I can't remember who it was on in the second half. And we were lucky not to have gone down to nine men by that point. Yeah, yeah, I I, I, I agree with you, Michael, on the on the Bikel. The Bikel thing, I thought it, I thought he should have been sent off, but I, I felt like a straight red, which I know different leagues have different things for. So in MLS, I know it's like in the Bundesliga, for example, it's it's a it's a straight red is a three game suspension versus mm-hmm. two yellows being a one. So I don't think MLS has that um, based on uh, previous experience. But... Only if it's deemed later by Disco to be dangerous play, like uh, Marcel for Montreal against us right. at BC Place. Right. Well, in the Bundesliga, it's automatic. Right, straight red is three games. You can appeal, I guess, but um, yeah. Um, so, but no, I think he he was. It was unfortunate. He should have probably been a little bit more not ca- maybe not cautious, but careful at least. Because uh, again, it looked like he was diving into a tackle really early before the pl- before Svensson had fully kind of uh, committed to what he was going to do or where he was going to go, and he just like he ended up he couldn't pull out of it, and so uh, it's unfortunate for him and unfortunate for Vancouver, but. It, I mean, he, he sh- I mean, yeah, he should have been sent off for at least a, the very minimum a second yellow. Um, the Cav- I agree with Steve about Cavallini, too. We were t- talking about this the whole time. His, his yellow card was, I think you used the term reckless, Michael, which is, you know, very apt. It was very, very, a very foolish decision. He, he's, he is reckless, though. Like, MDS was asked about this in the pregame press conference, I think by JJ. It's like, does he have concerns that he's got this kind of reckless, hot-headed streak and that he's picking up all these cards. And MDS wasn't concerned. I'll be amazed if he's not sent off again before the end of the year because he plays on the edge. And I like that. I, I like players that have that. But yeah, you've, you can't be reckless with it. It's got to be controlled aggression. The problem is, though, Michael, in Vancouver, we have the experience of of a player like Kendall Watson, who came in with so, mm. so aggressive and playing on that edge that you speak of and that you like, but he got this reputation in the league so that some of his things that were not that harsh, he was getting booked for, uh, and that led to led, led to problems for him, uh, you know, with suspension and all that kind of stuff and red cards as well. Um, so I, I think Kava has runs the risk of gaining a reputation with MLS referees and it, causing him even more problems um, in, like in the long term. But I agree with you. I mean, based on what he's done in, in the few games uh, since even or, since Orlando, right, you would not be surprised to see him, uh, you know, find his way into the, the referee's notebook, you know, with a sending off in the, in the game, in the final nine games or whatever it is. Just to wrap the game up very quickly, because we've got a lot more stuff to, to talk about, but Seattle had chances galore in the, the closing 20 minutes, and they squandered so many. I I didn't even end up putting them in the report because they literally felt like there was f- five, six, maybe even more that should have gone got put away. They were certainly going for it. They were trying to, to increase it. So, I mean, at the end, coming away with a 3-1 loss was pretty good after that second-half performance. The fact that they were in it up until half-time and then by full-time, it's like you're lucky to get out of there with a two-goal defeat. It's like, baffling you've got a bit of an update steve on the second goal i believe yeah it, it uh, actually grazed just barely grazed meredith's hands uh one of his hands and then went into godoy but i don't think he directed it towards godoy's leg at all 
I just I just want to ask. Um, I mentioned these guys in our in our conversation. Uh, Steve, Stephen, last time you joined us uh, from the bunker, there you talked about how teams uh, who play against Seattle tend to not do well when they when they line up in a in a four four two. Now I know MDS Michael had talked about how they the plan was to bunker uh, and try and make it hard for Seattle to break them down. Um, I just wonder your observations, Stephen. Do you feel like it was uh, going with that formation was a bit of a like a, like a not not a good choice? Um, based on how teams have, have played, fared against Seattle in the past? You know, I think the results in the first half speak for themselves. Uh, regardless of what I think, they were very, very effective at keeping Seattle from creating dangerous opportunities. Uh, they kept Seattle from getting in behind. And I think that you have to be happy with the defensive performance in the first half uh, outside of a maybe a lapse here or there. You know, right at the end of the half, Morris gets that free header on the far post. Like, he should score that. Um but for the most part, like Whitecaps were really, really solid and they, they, they were better defensively than I thought they could be. And I thought that was more about what they were doing than about anything that Seattle wasn't doing. Um, if you guys don't mind, before we move on, could I ask you a, a quick question? Of course. Or two, I hope just one. Um, I, I was interested in, in, it seemed to me like for both D- uh, Dijome and Milinkovic, the, they really only had one moment in the game and it was the same moment where Dijome gets fouled and they don't mm. call it and it should have been called. But before he ever gets fouled, he, he's got to pass the ball to Milinkovic there. Yes. I, sh- I should have mentioned five. that in the first half. But the yeah. Whitecaps broke with five, right? They've got five guys up there. It's like, holy crap, where's the nosebleed, right? And, and he doesn't square it to Milinkovic, who's wide open. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it was like Milinkovic even playing the rest of the game? Do you know what? When you said there about, oh, I've got a question about Dahomey and Milinkovic, I was like, I thought in my head, oh, aye, Milinkovic was playing. Because, yeah, he was invisible. But yeah, that chance in the first half, that was terrible decision-making from Dahomey. You, you've got four guys breaking. I, count, I put it back to seeing there was five Seattle defenders. But you've got options left and right of you. You don't keep hold of the ball for as long as you do. And that was frustrating, but yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of Milinkovic and what he's done here, but he was invisible tonight. They just could not get him into the game, and I think that falls back into being in the 4-4-2, because he's only really played 4-2-3-1 or 4-3-3 when he's been on the wing. So I don't know what he was told about having some midfield or defensive responsibilities, but yeah, he was he was invisible. I th- I think that was part of it, Michael, and not just not just for Milinkovic, for Dahomey as well, because uh, Dahomey I think did respectable defensively, uh, like he was helping out quite a bit, helping Jake out quite a bit, and um, yeah, so I think that's what put him off. Because yeah, right, I think Milinkovic has been uh, has had some performances that 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 speak to his quality, but I think yeah, tonight again, like we talked about before, being maybe so focused on defense prohibit him from maybe attacking in the way that he, that we know he can. And, and uh, I agree with Michael on the, on the uh, formation that probably affected him. Also, I think his best games have been uh, recently as a number 10 uh, when he was kind of like in the middle of the pitch. So uh, I think, I think, I, and, and before the, this all happened, there were a number of moments, especially in Orlando where he would disappear for long stretches in the game. And like, I mean like over 40 minutes where you wouldn't even hear about him. And he, then he'd just show up for a second, and then again, he would he'd disappear again. 
Okay, I just want to ask, and you're probably the, the best person to ask because you were in, this, in the ground. One of the things that, I mean, you know, generations change, right? And, 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 and we're in this crazy pandemic, empty stadium world, which is, um, you know, you, so in one sense, that's a, an excuse or a reason or whatever. But one of the things that just f- felt awkward about watching the game tonight is it felt like even, even with all those excuses and all those reasons that none of the white, like it didn't feel like this was a big game for the, like for the players. Like it just felt like there was something lacking from Vancouver. Um, like Seattle, I, I got a sense of it a little bit. And partly it's just, I mean, whenever you show Brian Smetcher on the screen, I feel that a little bit, but, but um, like that they're up for it, that they care, that they know the significance of this game. Um, I know it's for you. I know for Seattle, it's not Portland and whatever. Then that's I, I totally understand that. But there's there's always been in the MLS era, and obviously before the MLS era, there's been there's been something special when the teams take the field. And I've been there when there's you know, whatever thirty thousand or twenty you know or fifty thousand or whatever in Seattle or twenty five thousand in Vancouver. And I've been there when there's two thousand people watching, right? Like or or a few hundred watching the reserves play, play in, in Langley or uh, you know at at, at a field or whatever. What was it like in the stadium? Was it like, did it feel like a, a class, a Cascadia match to you? It felt more like one of these closed door games between just two MLS sides than it does like, or than it did when Seattle played Portland a couple weeks ago. And it was here, there was an intensity to that. And even mm. behind glass without any noise, you can kind of feel the intensity comes off that comes off of it. And I, I feel bad because I watch Vancouver every week. I root for the Whitecaps virtually every time I watch them play. I I don't want to sound like an ass just coming off and saying this, but it's just, I don't think Seattle really look at them as a rival at the moment. And, and I think it's just because the results sort of speak for themselves. And, and, you know, the thing about rivalry games is that they're supposed to transcend record, right? Like that's the thing. Portland can beat Seattle. Seattle can beat Portland anytime they play each other. And it just, I, I think you're right, Zach. I, it doesn't feel like Seattle-Vancouver has that element to it right now where that unpredictability comes in, where that passion comes in, where, where things can happen. Um, and, and it's been that way for a while. But it, it wasn't like that when Vancouver came into the league. When Vancouver came into the league, it definitely felt like they could beat Seattle mm-hmm. on any day they played them. Um, yeah, because I think that that's five, eight, eight games now where we haven't beat Seattle. Yeah, since 2017 or something. Mm. I, I remember, Stephen, I remember being at uh, Starfire in a, a preseason game. I think, I think it was, tw- I think it was, uh, I think it was before, it wasn't the Cascadia Summit. Summit. It might have been actually Vancouver was still in USL. No, they, no, they were, bo- anyways. And it was, I was there and there was a couple of like ECS dudes and, but the, the teams didn't care. Like they were up for it, man. Like you could, the, the challenges, the way the challenges were going and the tension, like you could, it was palpable. Right. And it was, no, there was no one there. And I, you just don't feel that anymore. And I know again, Vancouver, a lot of the players don't know about that, but there are enough players in that squad who should know about that. Uh, I mean, there's enough flounders on, on in the Vancouver roster that they should know. They should know about that. I was, uh, we, I think Michael was there too. We were at a, at Starfire for a residency games. And, oh, yeah. uh, there were, and, and that was intense and, yeah. and to the point where we almost got our coach kicked off mm-hmm. uh, for yelling on the field and everything like that. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think there's any intensity. I think it's a combination of uh, no away supporters. Uh, but the, I think the biggest thing is what Steven says is I, 
forget the Sounders. I don't think anybody considers the Whitecaps as competition at this point. I, I, I felt the same way in the TFC and Montreal games. I felt like they were either, you know, the, the game where TFC was ahead and then they took the second half off. Uh, it was games like that. Like, I, I don't think there, there, were, there is very much, uh, uh, maybe not, on, not in, out in the open, but behind the scenes, there's not very much respect for the Whitecaps and what they put on the pitch. Yeah, that's fair. I actually wrote in my, my notes that it felt like a training game. It Which is not, something we've said a bunch now. Yeah, it did these. not feel like an MLS game. You know, I, I think Montero, Rose, Meredith all had above-average games. Maybe were three of the best Whitecaps on the pitch for a lot of the game. And that being said, I, I, think, it, I think we have to mention that it, it makes it harder for Seattle to take Vancouver seriously when three of their best players in the game are Seattle reserves from five or six years ago and a striker mm. who hasn't played for them in seven or eight years. You know, the league's changed a lot in that time. But most has- other clubs have gotten way better since then. For for me, like if we were giving a Whitecaps man of the match, and we don't like doing that anymore after defeats, it would have been Meredith. And the fact you're giving it to a goalkeeper that's let in three goals, one, at least one, maybe two he could have done better with, and he's your man of the match, it's like, that is not a good sign. How many times did we do that for Cripple? Where Cripple yeah. had like three or four goals and we thought he was the man of the match. Yeah. Michael, can I can I ask a question from uh, from YouTube? Yes, it, it's just following up on this, uh, for, and it's for Stephen. Uh, Ryan Burns uh, asks, uh, interested what Stephen thinks the Sounders and Timbers do have done that the Caps have not and do not. The difference between the clubs now. Well, I wish I could make it more complicated than this, but Seattle and Portland have comprised the last five representatives for the Western Conference in MLS Cup. But how do they get there? And it's like, is it just money or is it better scouting? Is it like, to, when I watch, especially like if you look at TFC and you look at Seattle, contested three of the last four MLS Cups each, they mix their young guys with MLS veterans and money well spent. And they don't just look in the one area to bring in their, their designated players either. And I think that's the big, big difference. For too long, we've just looked in the one spot, MDS then cast the net far and wide and then brought us in players that, like Jasser Kamiri from Tunisia, maybe he'll turn out to be great. He's been called up for Tunisia. He's been an absolute disaster for us. I just think their scouting and everything is way better at Seattle, Portland, Toronto. I think for me, it's, and we've discussed it many times before, is they use the uh, tools that are available to them uh, perfectly or, or near perfectly, or at least use them. Forget, forget even using them perfectly. They use the tools that are available to them. So the three DPs that they bring in are p- true DP players that are worth the money that they pay for. Um, and and then that, uh, that elevates the rest of the roster. And whereas younger players come on the pitch and they feel more confident because they have such talent around them. I, th- I think all of those things are true. And I also think it, it, one of the things that I think people in Vancouver have come to more fully realize in the last year or two is in Seattle and Portland, you have this overwhelming sense that ownership and upper management care care about how they how they actually perform on the on the on the field um you might not like Merritt Paulson right 
but you know the dude cares. You know what I mean? Or you might not like his approach or his social media persona or whatever, or his interactions, but you know the dude cares. You might not like Gavin Wilkinson, but you know he, you know he cares about the Portland Timbers and how they, how they do, how they're perceived, um, you know, how they go about things, all that kind of stuff. You know that they care. And same thing in Seattle with, you know, uh, Ann Hour and, and, and I, I forget all the other names of guys in the, in the middle management. But, like, you know that they care, right? Um, whereas in Vancouver, the fact that there's no – there's limited uh, exposure to ownership – and it's only usually in crisis and the, you know, executives um, public appearances are, are very, again, usually crisis based, but there's never been a sense that they actually care. It seems like they only care about r- running a business, not like what the football club actually, actually is, but, uh, but, but Zach, for me, Zach, that's a broken record. Zach, we do get tweets from our owners that tell us to hang tough. So <laughs> at least we have that. Yeah. That's our 2% owner. Yeah. So, I mean, Stephen, going back to Ryan's question then, like when you watch the Whitecaps, what do you feel is lacking compared to, say, the Sounders? Okay, so I have two parts to this because I don't think this is the Whitecaps' fault, okay, and I'll get to this, but I think what Whitecaps don't do very well, it seems like year over year, Vancouver never keep their best pieces. There's never any building. The best pieces always go away. They always get sold. That being said, I think we all know and we all recognize that Whitecaps don't enjoy the same ability to attract players and to retain players the way that Seattle and Portland do, just on account of the turf at the stadium, on account of the travel schedule, on account of being in Canada instead of the United States, where where most of the clubs are. We, we, we know these are challenges that Whitecaps have to overcome that make it more difficult for them to sign players that Seattle and Portland just kind of take for granted. Um, I, I don't like that's the thing I feel bad about bringing it up because I don't know how to overcome that problem. I don't think it's just geography. I don't don't think it's just as simple as putting in a grass field or chartering flights. I I think those things could help. Um, But maybe it does come back to money. Maybe it does come back to greater investment would be, would be the most immediate solution to the issue. But if you just look at it, you know, Portland started to get decent 2012, 2013. They, they found pieces that worked and then they started to build on it and they started to add players around it. And Seattle has always relentlessly kept their best players. And Vancouver A, sometimes it's hard for us to identify who are the guys who we should be hanging on to here, who are the guys to build around. And, and B, sometimes ownership is more interested in shipping them out and getting the money for them. Uh, than they are in keeping them. And I think we've all seen that ownership isn't so effective at turning around and spending that money. Sadly true. We'll talk a little bit more about some additions and and stuff like that in the next part. I just want to end this part. Uh, Something else from the YouTube chat from our good friend, Navid Masinshi, who says, I'm wondering what MDS told the team at half time. Maybe something like, time to show your true colours? And that was what we saw in the second half. It was a strange... And I keep referring to the team as being like Jekyll and Hyde. We saw it in the match this time because I I still don't really know... I I guess it's more what Schmetzer said to Seattle at halftime that lit a fire under them. We'll we'll talk about what MDS said after the match in the next part. And we'll be back with that after this. Hi, I'm to St. Ricketts and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show.
Welcome back to the AFT and Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. And kicking off this part, it's the first song from the new AFTN Artist of the Month. English punk band Splodginess Abounds with a song from their 1981 self-titled debut album, a homage to Coronation Street at the time, that was Anarchy, Chaos, Stanley Ogden. And we're going to have a lot more to come this month from Splodginess Abounds, including a special three-of-a-kind selection from them later this month. I'm sure you can't wait. But let's get back to the football chat now, the final part of our Whitecaps chat. And I'm going to kick off this part by playing you some audio from both head coaches after the the Seattle-Vancouver game. So you heard our thoughts on the match in the first two parts. Let's hear a little bit of what Sounders head coach Brian Schmetzer and Whitecaps head coach Mark DeSantis. Let's see what they made of how things played out at Century Link Field. Well, the adjustments at halftime were just reminding them of what the original game plan was. Uh, We had talked before the game about not getting frustrated because we knew they were going to sit back. And look, to Mark's credit, he didn't sit back all the way. I mean, they were still pressing a little higher up the field, but, you know, we certainly were... You know, you could feel that the game was going to one of those games where we had a lot of possession and a lot of shots, but couldn't score and this, that, and the other. I think your comment is spot on, Chris. Jao Paulo's goal opened things up. I mean, we just, again, reiterated what the game plan was, getting the prime assist zones, how do we do that, crossing references, all of those things. But JP's goal... And a lot of, it, 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 he makes it look easy, but for a lot of you guys out there, and I'm going to talk directly to my academy players, uh, the young players that we have here at the Seattle Sounders, if you really look at the concentration and the simplicity of that movement, the ball comes to him, and his first touch, you just see him concentrating. His first touch is so perfect for him to set himself up to strike the ball cleanly in that moment, it's such a simple goal, but that's the thing that young players are lacking. That is what young players have to strive for. In that moment, that was nothing more than a simple soccer move that Joe Paulo makes look easy. Soccer is a simple game, and young players need to pay attention. You guys had 22 shots. You kind of alluded to this that it, you know, until Joe Paulo's uh, goal, that it was maybe you were a little worried about it going in a, in a different direction. But um, is that a game where you look at three goals, I'm happy with it? Or is that three goals, but I feel like we left some on the field? I'm very happy, Jeremiah. I mean, look, uh, if, your sco- if your team scores three goals, and look, our goal difference is pretty good. I'm sure you guys know what that is. I don't know what it is. I don't know, Alex, but it's pretty good. I mean, we've scored a lot of goals. Soccer has always been criticized as a low-scoring sport. Our team is not a low-scoring team. I mean, we've been pretty good offensively. 
Now, one of the goals was an own goal. Okay, you can say, okay, whatever, we scored two. But we put them under pressure. We put them under duress in different moments in the game. So I'm, I'm very pleased. I mean, you, you, you want to ask me the question, Jeremiah, that gets me rankled is the, you know, the penalty. I mean, that's the one that kind of upsets me because it's similar to, you know, a soft penalty that we gave up with Javi and San Jose and this and that. I mean, that's the stuff that gets me fired up. Well, I could follow up on that real fast. I'm uh, sure you would like to get me going. I'm you, sure you would. What, well, what were you told about that? I mean, it, it. I mean, if I were to guess, it took so long for him to review it because VAR was probably suggesting that he not only overturned the penalty, or not only overturned the red, but overturned the penalty. I mean, what? It looked like the fourth official was explaining something to you. No, no, we we're just talking. The, the fourth official is a good guy. Uh. The referees have a hard look, Jeremiah. It's hard to be a referee in MLS. Look, it, it's emotional. It's a sport. It's whatever. I mean, they make mistakes. They're human beings. I'm not. I'm not going to sit here and criticize the referee. I just didn't think it was a foul. So, that, I mean, that's the source of my frustration. I mean, Cavallini, when you watch the replay, you know, kind of pushed Yaimar in the back. But again, live, I wasn't there. I'm not privy to where the referee was standing and what his what he saw he had a better view of it than I did so he made the call the red card was fine the VAR did its job he rescinded the red card so fair enough you know we knew from the start that it would have been it would be very difficult to come here uh, and get points it's always difficult for any team um, Seattle has a lot of experience, a lot of players that can make a difference. And uh, we had to stay very strong, very compact in the first half uh, and take some, some good choices uh, on the break, some good choices on transition. Uh, I think that we had glimpse of very good opportunities I would say two major ones the one with Cava uh, on the low cross and Frey makes the reaction save and then the one uh, in transition where it's a, a foul on Christian Dajame and a yellow card and the ref doesn't call that um, but we felt at halftime we knew it would be a game of patience and we we could get something out of it um, but the first 15 minutes of the second half, when we concede that goal from from João Paulo and the unlucky bounce on Eric, uh, it was it was hard to react. Um, unfortunately, one once we scored the three-one, um, the the sending off of Genio comes too fast, and then it was hard. Then you you're you're playing in Seattle against Seattle, three-one down and. And um, and you have to to play with a man down. You start thinking about how important Wednesday is. You talked about uh, it being a game of patience tonight. Uh, heading into the second half, what do you does your group need to do to become more patient and and get that real consistency that we that's been lacking a little bit this season? Yeah, well, talking about consistency this season is very unfair because. People are not living what we live. So it's very unfair and I, I have very little respect uh, for people that talk about 
uh, a lot of respect for you, Jenna, very little respect when we talk about consistency because it's easy to speak when, when people are not in our position and living what we live. Uh, but I think what we need to do is a problem that we have for, for a while, that is on the ball, we need to make sure that we have um, enough midfielders with personality to play. Uh, we have to, to find that. We have to make sure that we, we get midfielders with personality to play and give us opportunity to have more the ball and, and breathe more in the right moments with the ball. And I think that it's going to be hard to grow there this season. One thing that was sort of brought up quite a bit on, on the broadcast was the team's record uh, when the other team scores first. I believe it's 1-19. and and again, we saw it tonight, you know, the Seattle scored and then they just kind of pulled away from you guys. Why, ha why has that been in, in your estimation? Uh, I think that, you know, when you're playing teams like uh, Seattle or, or even LAFC and you concede uh, that first goal, when you start opening yourself a little bit more up against teams like that, you suffer a lot with their quality. Uh, we have to make sure that we become a team and we become a club that has that that edge and the, the, the front foot and the ability to, to make a difference uh, before the opponent does that. And it's not the case right now. Right. And that's, but that's a large sample size of games we're talking about. That's, you know, not 10 games. That's, you know, 20 games plus now. Yeah. Yeah, and what's the solution? I don't understand your question. Well, I'm just saying, you know, it, it's it's not it's just something that date back over, you know, since the beginning of 2019. Now, um, you know, what are the steps that you make to to get there so you have that that quality? Well, it's a mindset. Also, it's the mentality when we concede the goal to believe that it's the game's far from being over. You know, I think it's a mindset at the same time, um, but it's also making sure that we have the advantage before them. And uh, the last uh, year and a half, uh, the opponents have been stronger. That's the reality. So the gaffers, Mark DeSantis and Brian Schmitz are there, just chatting about how they saw things play out in the Cascadia Cup clash. So just to go over a little bit of what MDS had to say after the match, obviously not a happy bunny and you would not expect him to be. He, he said he felt that this was going to be a game of patience, that by half time he thought the team could get something from the game. But after that first goal went in, he said the team found it hard to react and it goes back to the fact that once they go down a goal, they've only won one of those games that they've fallen behind and that's what he needs to kind of find the better of. He was asked, is he worried about things just now? And I thought this was a very telling one. He, to him, the word worry means different connotations in football sense. And he didn't explain, but he has explained before. If someone says, are you worried about something? It's like, I'm worried about my family. I've got a sick relative or we can't pay the bills. To him, that's real worry. This is just football. 
But he said he's not worried about anything because he has to do the best with what he has right now. Now, we've heard that before. Sadly, a lot of what we've heard the last couple of weeks is things that we've heard before. Like Axel saying, oh, we've been close to getting signings or we're close to getting some signings over the line and we've not, we're not getting them done. We were told, oh, we can't get signings in because of the quarantine. And then Evan Bush reveals in his press conference he's got a three-day quarantine because they sent a charter to New York to fly him, one player, to fly him to Portland. And because of that, if he passes two tests, he only has to quarantine for three days. So you can get players from within MLS and within the States that only have to go into a three-day quarantine. That That's for later in this part. But I mean, what, what did you make of what MDS said there? He seems resigned to the fact that this is just going to be a struggle. And I asked him on Friday, is it a case of targeting the games that you feel you can get the points from? What do you even class those games as anymore? Because you'd have thought San Jose. They've been humped in a couple of games. They've now beat LAFC and they beat, I think it was LA Galaxy tonight. And now they're climbing the table. And LA Galaxy is the team that's below the Whitecaps. I still don't fancy us going to LA and, and getting the job done against the Galaxy though either. So, I mean, is this season just a foregone conclusion? Is it over? Uh, yeah, I would say it was, it was over. <laughs> that's where I would classify it as. But yeah, if, if MDS... I think a lot of coaches do do that in anyways, whether they want to admit it or not, that they, they kind of pinpoint where, they, especially when it's a condensed schedule like this, they want to pinpoint where they can get points and where they might have to bunker down and try maybe go for the draw. I don't think anybody's saying, oh, we're going to lose this game. But I think it's either you win it, you're going to go for the win, or you're going to try to get the draw and play for the draw, which sometimes ends up being a, a losing strategy. I mean, Stephen, watching it from afar... And like looking at the table just now, let me just get the standings up because we're second bottom. We are still just three points off a playoff place. And considering how badly they've been playing in some of these games and not taking chances in the games that they have been playing decent enough in, it's still doable. Do you, would you put money on the Whitecaps making the playoffs right now? Would I put money on the Whitecaps making the playoffs right now? Huh. I'm not sure how to answer that politely. I think I'll just say no. Um, no, I, I would not. I think that the season's done. I think that when you trade Jordi Reyna to DC United for no compensation this year whatsoever, we're just not even worried about what's happening with the squad this year. I think I think that shows where your mind is at. Um, you mentioned bottom of the standings. I, I think it's it's far enough gone that it just seems hard to do at this point. Salt Lake's uh, 18 from 14. Whitecaps are 15 from 15. There are a lot of people in between. Um, there's not a ton of time left in this season. And uh, just while we're on the standings here, you know, Nashville's got 14 from 17, okay? And somebody's going to have to remind me who it was, but to me the most resonant quote I've ever heard out of the Whitecaps front office was, was the man who said, I believe we can be the most efficiently run club in MLS, right? It's like, great, okay. Apparently that doesn't have anything to do with results on the field because no. Nashville started five USL players tonight. They started five guys who played in USL last year and they drew nil-nil at New England. 
So tell me, are you the most efficiently run club in MLS when Nashville comes in, starts half a USL squad? They've got two more points than you do in a game fewer played? I mean, it depends what you class as efficiency, for for one thing. Uh, we won't go into that too much because that is something that we've, we've talked about before with the front office. But I didn't actually know until I looked at the standings just now, Nashville's in the playoff places in the East as a Western team. But anyway, that aside, they were terrible. What on earth happened to Nashville that put them in the in the playoff places? I'm like stunned by that. They had the summer off. Oh, that's true. They they've been topping up their tan. I mean, we'll, we'll have a look uh, just MLS in general in a little bit because there was a fun thing happened in the DC game tonight that I don't know if you guys have seen, but we'll come to that. Um, now MDS, couple of comments here from the chat. Prog Tim says MDS did complain about what they have to go through when answering Gemma's question tonight about consistency. But he says, aren't the Impact and TFC going through exactly the same thing? Yes, they are. Ryan Burns said... Talent, yeah, that's true. TFC <laughs> Ryan... gets to play at Ranch. That's nothing like playing Portland at Portland in a home game. No, but they will have to play New York in New York at some point. In fact, did they not just do that and got beat? I think. Oh, did they? I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. I, I just saw Toronto and Connecticut tonight, and that's infinitely yeah. better than Portland. Yeah. Uh, Ryan Burns says, MDS, for a coach that every opportunity says he doesn't want to make excuses, since the men in black... I always think when I see MIB, I think men in black. Since the MLS is back tournament, he's quick to make excuses. He says, all MLS teams are dealing with unusual circumstances. They are... There are some weird things, though. So, for example, today, the Whitecaps had to fly from Portland to Seattle at 10 a.m. because that's the latest they can fly for an away game. So they got into Seattle at 10.45 for a game that kicked off at 7 and then just had to kick about their hotel, I'm assuming having naps and stuff. So, I mean, that's not ideal preparation. MDS was asked on Friday about it and he said... Look, we know other teams are going through this. We have to somehow find a way to deal with this travelling. Because he says, travelling on the day of playing a game is not good. Do they go the day before and risk exposure to COVID? They don't want to do that. I'm sure some players might be nervous about that. But the other option is you do fly on game days. I mean, you know what it's like flying. Even if you're on a pretty empty charter flight or whatever... There's not a lot of leg room. This is stretching out. There's the air quality. It kind of saps you. It dehydrates you. I mean, genuinely, it isn't ideal. But a lot of teams are going through it. We do obviously have it tough because we've got no games at home at all. And every team has got five games coming up now in the space of 16 days. One thing which was raised, Naveed Masinchi again. Uh, this was a, a discussion that we were having on Twitter, and he's actually updated it tonight, which I'll tweet out. But he put together, and KJ talked about this on the TSN broadcast tonight, MDS's record after the first 50 games. And I don't know if you actually know this, Stephen. So his first 50 games in charge across all competitions, MDS has won 13, drawn 11, 26 defeats, They've scored one goal in 34 of those 50 games, or one goal or less, 34 of the 50 games. He's taken 50 points from 50 games with a 26% win record. Does that shock you? 
know because I don't think the level of investment has drastically increased over what Carl Robinson had. Now, interesting you mentioned Carl Robinson because Naveed also put together Robbo's record over the first 50 games. And my caveat here is I'd like to see Robbo's record over the last 50 because I think that's kind of a comparison because obviously MDS took over Robbo's squad to an extent. But MDS has spent a lot more in his first 50 games than Robbo would have spent in his last 50, if that makes sense. But I didn't have time to put that together, so I know Naveed's watching this. So I would be really interested in seeing Robbo's record over the last 50. But Robbo's record in his first 50 was 18 wins compared to MDS's 13, 17 draws to MDS's 11, and he only lost 15 to MDS's 26 for a 36% win record and 71 points claimed. So a big, big difference. Now, the one thing is about Robbo, what Robbo took over and what uh, MDS took over was that Robbo took over a team that was kind of ascending. There was a player that he lost, obviously Camilo. Uh, so that was one player, whereas MDS essentially lost the majority of the team that he, he, that he was supposed to take over. Yeah, that's so why I'd almost, also like to see Robbo's last 50 as well, because I think that's... A, if you want to compare anything with MDS, you want to compare his uh, for 50 games with the first 50 games of the 2011 Whitecaps, uh, because uh, that would be like an expansion team, which MDS kind of took over when he when he even started coaching. Oh, yeah, we, we, need, we need better numbers, but I think... Um, I think someone like Glassity has talked about this a little bit on, on Twitter. And I think he, we all have a bias in one way, way shape or form in Glassity, sorry, he or she, um, I think uh, said that kind of when, when Robinson took over, when Carl Robinson took over, they were still in the upper third of spending. And by the end of his time, it wasn't, it was, so when he was doing his best, it was when they were spending more. Okay. And as things declined, um uh yeah that was in the latter the, the end of the end of his time which again goes to this bigger story of it seems like the approach from the ownership the very much absent ownership is that uh they are decreasing their investment into the squad itself i'd like to see i wish i could be on a fly on the wall to see what drastically changed this ownership the, uh, the, the what happened was it the fact that atlanta came in at the time, it scared the hell out of them about how much they were spending and how much everybody else was spending to keep up or something like that. And they go, we can't handle this. We're just going to take it the other way and try to do something different. Yeah, but here's a couple of things. One, yes, Atlanta is spending a lot of their own money, but I don't think we've talked about this probably enough on the show. Uh, it, when an expansion team comes in, they are allocated uh, a significant amount of extra allocation for three years. Uh, I know. For, I know. Vancouver. Their first year was one million in allocation. After that, I don't know. Um, and I only know that because Jeff Anderson told me himself. Um, but um, but yeah. So Atlanta, you can see. I think you can partially see part of their their decrease in performance is connected to having less and less alloc- allocation. And they 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 were smart and they mm-hmm. kind of struck well. Well, they had the advantage. And you know, and got a title and all that kind of all that kind of stuff. Now, obviously, there are many other factors in, involved in that, but I think that is one that is is, is kind of not always, um, maybe not always recognized with with the uh, the expansion of the the new team, the new teams to the league. I mean, Stephen, if if you think of the teams that have come in and they are spending money, 
the more teams that get added, then the, the Whitecaps budget, if it stays the same, they're going to fall and fall and fall. And they have been amongst the, the lowest spenders. I know the salaries for this year haven't come out yet, but I do feel, you, you look at the, the last year, they've they brought in a $6 million designated player. They are paying, I imagine, some pretty hefty salaries. Like they, they paid to bring Godoy in. Um, I don't know what kind of ticket he's on yet because we're, we're waiting to see all this kind of stuff. But I mean, they have been paying transfer fees. They are paying some wages to, to guys as well. That's going to be interesting to see what they are. I don't think this year, under Mark, you can say that they haven't spent money. They've maybe not gone crazy and, and brought in lots of DPs like some of the other teams have. They've also made money, of course, by selling in Bomb, but they had paid money to bring in Bomb in in the first place. They're sitting on a whack of gam and tam and all the, the Garber bucks from like in Bomb going on and Fonzie and clauses that Fonzie's going to have hit. Is it a case, do you feel, that next year they spend money they can get back in the playoffs. If they, do you think they would have to be another top eight spending team to really turn this team around to an extent that they don't just make the playoffs, but they're actually competitive in the playoffs? Simply put, yes. I think they'd have to spend in the top eight to do that next year. If I can expand, mm. um, I, I would say that spending this year doesn't undo the dumpster fire of decisions that came before that. And that, you know, I, I think Zach mentioned, you know, uh, MDS inherited essentially an expansion team, right? And like, it didn't need to be that way. Look at where this team was on October 3rd, or what is it? October, yeah, October 3rd, 2017, mm -hmm. right? Couple couple weeks before the end of that regular season, we're still in it with a legitimate chance to win the West, right? The, the fact that things have gone like this since then, we are truly in the very darkest timeline. And I, I admit, it occurred to me tonight, is it time for a gimmick? If ownership's not going to do what you're suggesting and spend in the top eight next year to try and get in the playoffs, maybe it's time to go the San Jose Earthquakes direction. Maybe it's time to go the Stoke City direction and figure out what's our gimmick. You know, earthquakes play man-to-man. -man. Maybe you find a guy with a long throw and just bunker like crazy. I don't know. But if we're not going to spend, either we have to spend consistently year over year, keep the best pieces and keep on getting better, or you might as well try and try and find a gimmick and and beat people with a cheese strategy. That's that's an interesting. I've never really thought of it that way because I think everyone just thinks about having a balanced team. I mean, a, a nice unusual gimmick for the Whitecaps would be to get a midfielder. I mean, we've never <laughs> never thought of having a number ten. That would that would be a nice gimmick. But like to be serious and not just to be kind of facetious about stuff. Robbo's success and the years that he had, and I know he's, he's much maligned now, but I think folk actually do forget the success that Robbo had with this team. And they weren't spending big, big bucks. But so much of it was built around a solid defence. And you look at his last year and MDS's two years, that defence has been like all over the place, shipping goals left, right and centre. And we've got one of the best goalkeepers in MLS, but you, you could have, I mean, five goalkeepers in the books, I think we'd have to play all five sometimes to, to keep some of the goals out that we've been letting in. Well, and, and I mean, maybe we don't want to break it down this much. And you look at why the defense was so 
so poor. Like I think sometimes we forget that how different players work together and gel together and perform well together. And I think the departures of people like Tim Parker and even David Osted, uh, whether you thought they were at the peak or they were in the decline or they were worth what they were asking or what they got or, or they were, they were underpaid in previous year or whatever, the chemistry and the connectedness that they had with, you know, those two plus Kendall, uh, Beta and Jordan, obviously earlier, like you can't, you can't re- replace that easily. And, and they, they discovered that very, very, very quickly. And they should have had the, if they were going to, you know, uh, see, I, I, I also, the, the preparedness of the, letting these guys go was not in effect because they didn't have good replacement for them. They kind of got rid of them and tried to, you know, bandaid over the, the issue that the hole that they left open. And I think that was the biggest issue too. And also, I think we talked it on a previous podcast where the reputation of the club went down when they were started getting rid of these players, the Tim Parker, uh, David Osted, um, the whole media day massacre, uh, all the players that left there, like Kai Kamara and everything like that. And, and, and them trying to, through back channels, put the blame on these players. And then these players actually spreading the word of what actually happened also put uh, a back, bad light on the Whitecaps organization. Yeah. It's, I mean, players talk and reputations like carry forward. A lot of people do respect Mark DeSantis. I've got a lot of respect for Mark because I've known him for so long. I've seen what his teams do. And I mean, I, I'd kind of asked him not so much about consistency on, on Friday, but I kind of said to him, normally in a season running, a manager's going to be like, okay, I'm going to be playing these 11 players and I'm going to play them to see out the last five, six games, whatever. But you know that that can't happen because of everything uh, that's going with it because players are, are going to need to rest. You'd run them into the ground. But at the same time, and I've spoken to him about this before and he mentioned it on Friday, you look at all his most successful teams and he says, I could name you all the players that would be regular starters for me, and especially on the defensive side. Now, our defence has been rotating constantly this year. It's like, we used to joke years ago, Stephen, it was like right-back roulette, because it was a different right-back we had every every week at the start of our MLS era. This whole defence, it's like you don't know really, apart from the goalkeeper, who was going to be in the centre of defence, was Jake going to be starting at right back? Was it going to be Bikel? Was it going to be Godoy? Was Adnan going to be left back? Was it going to be Gutierrez? Were they going to go three at the back? And you've just not got that kind of defensive consistency. And we've brought in a new goalkeeper now. And I mentioned this last year, and I don't want to really hark back to it, but I think when you've got a guy like Max Crippo, who sets the MLS save record for 16 saves in a game whilst letting in three goals and a lot of other shots that went on target. That is great on a personal thing, but that should not be held up as an achievement because it just shows you how bad that defence was. And what they did not do in the off-season was act enough to plug that defence. And we've got a designated player that's a left-back that likes to play left back, but is better as a left midfielder 
but says he doesn't really like playing left midfield because he likes to be a, a left back. But then he goes forward and then he doesn't come back. So you've got that on one side and then you've got Jake Nowinski, who's a solid MLS player. But if you've got a defence that's struggling, I think you need better than that. And that's something I think the Sounders have always done well, going back to Steve's point. Whenever someone's going to move on or whenever they've got a gap or a hole, they seem to already have someone lined up to, to fill it. You've got Smith coming back. You've got Torres coming back, as an example. You know, it's it's easier said than done, but it's not rocket science in MLS. You find four defenders who are going to be above average or really, really good, and then you have them play together a lot before playoffs. It's just, like, pretty much that easy, right? Like, Seattle do that. They keep their best defenders year after year. Like you say, they think about it ahead of time when guys are going to retire, when guys are going to go away. Who, who do you bring in next? Um, just to touch on the prior point, frankly, uh, Parker and Osted, neither Seattle nor Portland would have ever let them go to somebody else in the league. It just literally never would have happened. And I don't think that anybody can show me an example of a player like that from either of those clubs staying in the league somewhere where they could hurt their club, their old club. There's an interesting comment from Navid in the chat that says, did MDS have to blow everything up? I don't I think, think he. I don't think he had a choice. I think there, the, it was already blown up before he got here. Yeah, because like, at the time, well, Kendo and Kai wanted to go. Yeah, and even if he tried to, I don't think they would have stayed. Well, uh, Kai, I think Kai, Kai was already was, gone. Kai, no, Kai oh. was Kai was open to staying. Kai was very much open to staying. Kai would have stayed. Um, they just didn't want to pay him what he was. Okay. What he felt he was worth. I, I, I mean, so I mean, you the, can't you can't put that on MDS. No, but but the but the 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 number of players exiting when Robo exited, what I mean, there's different layers of this that we could talk about, but is directly related to the, at least sorry, at least partially directly related to the players' perception of how they felt the club treated their coaches, right? Mm. Now uh, there's a significant there's a significant die there. So I know Michael, you've talked about how you didn't like the approach of this. But that's why Kendall Waston said, while well, he was still here and still under contract, that he wanted to go because his, co- because of how his, he felt his coach was treated, and that, that's what it was. Um, and so the thing you talked about earlier about in terms of they have a reputation, the club has a reputation. Yeah, they do, and it's not a good one. Um, people who talk to players, who talk to people who've been here before, who people who know how they function, the reputation is not good, and that's one of the things that. And for those who love football in Vancouver, that might be the biggest damage that they've done. Uh, the people running the club, the owners and the executives is they have, they have given Vancouver this negative reputation, not only in MLS, not only in North America, but now it's gone around the world with things that, you know, can, you know, around with the Alfonso Davies transfer and whatnot. So like, yeah. And it's, they, and it's, it's not even at the, it's not even at the first team level. There's been yes. bad reputation, and I'm not talking about the the, um, uh, the the illegal stuff that happened. I'm talking about just everyday kind of stuff that happens in the academy. So there are stuff that that there there's some people are not happy with either, and it's spread around a little bit too. By by comparison, Seattle's obsessed with their reputation. Every aspect of it, what players who are coming in think of them, what players who have settled here think of them, what players who have left think of them. They're obsessed with it. They don't have a hard time getting players to go there. Mm. Yeah. I, and d- Vancouver is ex- obsessed, but they're, 
they don't know how to handle it. <laughs> they no, think no, they're doing a great it, job. The problem it, is, they, whatever it is, the culture's all wrong. It's whatever yeah. it is, it's not all wrong. A couple of things. One, one, which multiple people have said in the past, they think they they know they have all the answers. They're not really willing to um, take suggestions unless it comes in certain ways or whatever. But the other the other problem is they only care about the perception. And they only care that it's they only care that it's bad. So one of the problems that I think people have is they want to know how you deal with things when they don't go well. They want to know how you deal with difficult situations. And they know that in Vancouver, the the, the typical way that those are dealt with is it, it shouldn't be public. No one should know about because failure or mistakes or whatever is perceived as as, as only negative. There is this extreme fear of failure within the entire organization because they fear that it'll cost them money. And so that that's one of the biggest parts of the culture that I personally have experienced and I've heard from others as well. And when you have that level of fear of fa failure, it stifles creativity. It stifles excellence. It, it doesn't make it a place where people want to be, where people want to invest more of their lives. And yeah, I mean, that's just one of the, of the massive problem. But yeah, they care about they care about the perception and it has to be perfect so much so that they'll do anything to scrub erase anything that could be perceived as negative because they're not willing to, you know, hold their hand up very often, hold their hand up and say, I, you know, we got this wrong and we, you know what, we apologize and we, we need to fix this. And that's why Mark Panis was such a huge breath of fresh air to people because he was willing to say, yeah, we, we got that wrong. And I'm sorry, and we are going to work at being better. Whereas before, it was just like, yeah, we got that wrong. Uh, don't tell anyone. Let's hit the reset button, and uh, we're all good. And, and you, you can't function that way. And th th that's the reason why they've seen uh, such, a, uh, such a lapse, such a, a, a lowering of in, in, uh, investment and engagement from those who have been so passionate over the MLS era and, and before that. And it seems like that the only time that they're interested in repairing their reputation is when it's season ticket renewal time and that's when they'll come out with certain um uh, projects or or announcements or something like that that yeah. they're trying to get people excited again i don't know if i've told this anecdote before on the show but i want to tell it for steven because because he'll have a certain this is how this is how much you know that things like the fear of failure and money are so significant and so important to them uh it was a it was a uh, a voyager's cup match uh, Wednesday night Voyagers Cup match, either final or semifinal. Uh, it was against, I think, Toronto. And we were doing, the, for the first time, we were doing a, a 500 flag display across the supporter end at BC Place. And so we're in the ground, a few of a, a handful or two of supporters were in the ground ahead of time, uh, setting up the flags, putting them on poles, putting them, spreading them out the distance they needed to be to make it look, you know, respectable. So 500 BC flags on 500 poles, Whoa. four different people came up to us while we were doing this. Four different people at different levels within the organization. One was, uh, one was in communications. One was uh, the equipment manager. One was, uh, I think, one of the players when they were coming in. And one was uh, not a high-level executive, but someone connected to the executive. And, and without, fair, without fail, each of them asked the exact same thing as their first question to us. Can you, can you guess what that is? Who did this? How, how can we do this again? No, all of them, the very first words of all of their mouth was, how much did this cost you guys? Oh, yeah, sure. It was unbelievable. 
all, all they all the because because of the culture because of the way they work because of the way they operate all they were just like like wow this must have cost you guys a lot of money like how much did it cost you how much are you investing into this because that's what you the get? way their minds work that's the how much gam did you spend on this yeah it, it, it was just it was mind-boggling it was i was i i couldn't believe it that it was the same thing from from these different people throughout the organization but it, it, that's just one example of of who they are and the culture they've created and, and how they function. And I'm not saying that money isn't important because I know people like to say, Oh, you know, this is a business. Well, I get that. You, you need to be run as a, a functioning and a, and, a, and a competent business, but it, it also is more than a business. It's a, it's a football club. It's a community thing that needs to strive to be more than a business. And that's one of the things as, as much as it pains me to say it, that's one of the things that, that Seattle has done. Well, that's one of the things uh, that Portland has has done well. That Vancouver has has failed at, and is why you know when Bobby Leonard Uzi or uh, Paul uh, uh, Paul Barber back in the day said, "Oh, you know, it's just going to be like Seattle here, or even better." They did. They didn't get. They didn't get. They didn't get that it was it was more than a money thing. Yeah, there there are things that are more damaging than losing. Things that are more damaging than failure, and that that fear that. That culture, that's one of them, man. I mean, it's, I just, I don't know how you get away from it. And I, I feel bad because Whitecaps have factors that, that affect them that Seattle and Portland don't have. And, and it's just, I don't, I don't know how you overcome it, but I know it takes extra. Huge thanks to Navid. He's got the stats together that I asked for on Carol Robinson's last 50 games compared to Robbo's first 50. And it's not good news for MDS. It's quite damning, actually. So Robbo had 20 wins to MDS's 13, 13 draws to 11, and lost 19 to MDS losing 28. Robbo had a 38% winning percentage in his last 50 games that saw him sacked. MDS has a 25% winning percentage in his first 50 games that his future just now is, I guess, up in the air. That's quite stunning to me. It, it is, but again, I reiterate that it's a better example to compare them to the 2011 Whitecaps where they were, the, you go compare two expansion teams, basically. Yeah, it's just that when you put those stats out there... Yeah, they don't look good. Yeah. I agree with you there. They don't look good uh, on the surface fired Robbo because they couldn't score goals, right? And it's just like, I, I just feel like there would be a lot more tolerance for losing if you're doing it, scoring two or three times a game and getting blown, you know, giving up four or five, right? Like, at least it would be yeah. exciting and it caps yeah. would score a lot and it would outscore people sometimes, but like... Uh, Wasn't that the point that Robbo was let go was because they weren't exciting? And that's what saying, was right? good. Yeah. Well, they were also, they were on a losing streak and were not going to make the playoffs, that was the main reason that they got rid of him, I think. And and season ticket renewals were coming up. Yes, and they had they had to have their gimmick. I was just going to say, you know, keep keep finishing third bottom, second bottom, last in the West, whatever it is, but do it scoring a bunch of goals, and that'll be more exciting. That'll be progress. I think that pretty much wraps up the the Whitecaps talk for the show. Three parts, hour and a half. That's more than enough for for anyone. We're going to turn our attentions, though, to the rest of MLS in the next part, and we will be back with that after this. Hi, I'm Alan Koch, and you are listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. Bang, 
Welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio 101.9 FM. And kicking off this part, it's the first of tonight's three of a kind selection. We usually kick this off at the starts of parts three, four and five, but as this episode is a super extended six-parter, we're kicking it off at the starts of parts four, five and six. If you're new to the show or just want a reminder... Three of a Kind is where we play a song at the start of these three parts that is going to be linked in some way. Your job over these next couple of parts is to try and work out what the link is, and if you've managed to work it out by the end of the second song, try and come up with what the third song might be. So we've kicked off tonight's Three of a Kind with a song from 2013, English punk veterans The Last Resort, from there, this is my England Skinhead Anthems 3, and that was a song called Never Get a Job. What could this week's link be? So, I mean, we've talked about the White Caps in the first three parts there. There's a game coming up against San Jose on Wednesday that I think if they lose that, that's pretty much the season over, barring a tremendous late run. If you look at the standings in the West, Seattle out on top, Portland, SKC, Minnesota, Dallas, Colorado, LAFC, RSL. That's your top eight that's in the playoff spots. Now, you've got Colorado on 19 points, so the Whitecaps are just four off them, and they're in sixth. LAFC and RSL have got 18 points. Then you've got San Jose on 17, Houston on 16, Vancouver on 15, Galaxy on 15. It is still achievable if they can somehow string results together and get something going. I mean, let, let's just be honest. We kind of touched on it before. Do, do you see them making the playoffs? I guess, does anyone think we are going to make the playoffs? Put your hand up. Okay. So, out of that then, if we're looking at who's probably definitely in, Seattle, Portland, I'd say SKC... Probably Minnesota. So you've maybe got the top four are in. Out of the teams that's not in it just now, which is San Jose, Houston, ourselves and the Galaxy, do any of you feel that any of those four teams are going to put it together enough to make it in to the postseason? Frankly, I don't really feel it's about either of those, any of those four. I think it's about Colorado and if they can stay healthy. And by that, I mean coronavirus. I'm, I'm pretty mm. concerned going to be able to play all of their games and uh you know it's not just as simple as rescheduling them they don't have any space on the schedule they have to start playoffs when they start them uh, i i think colorado's heading towards some forfeits 
I hope it doesn't come to that because that, to me, is completely unacceptable. You've made a season, you've made these teams play, you know the risks, you can't get them to forfeit unless they've done something stupid to bring the virus to them. I, you can't forfeit, but you then have the issue. I know how do you fit these games in? But you can't, and you also, you know, you can't. It's not just as simple as saying, well, let's take Colorado's points per game average and add a couple on, right? It's, you know, well, Portland plays Colorado. Shouldn't that be a, you know, shouldn't, if they're playing Port or playing Colorado at home, aren't they going to beat them most likely? Isn't that three points for Portland, right? So, I mean, it's it's complicated. And I, I, I fear that that forfeit option is what comes into play. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if, Rap- if Rapids have to forfeit three or four times before the end of the season, yes, I definitely think they're getting jumped in the playoffs, in the standings, excuse me. That's interesting. If you look at some of the results, I mean, it's been so weird. KC have been up and down, but I think San Jose in particular, I'm just getting their results up here just now. They got a couple of shellackings, and I can't 100% off the top of my head remember who they were from, so let me have a quick look at this. So they lost 5-1 to LAFC, then they drew one all with Colorado, then they got a 7-1 thumping to Seattle. How could I have forgotten that? And then they've turned it around with a 0-0 draw, a 1-0 draw. Then they lost 6-1 to Portland. Then they lost 5-0 to Colorado. Then they've won 2-1, and then they've won another 1-2-1. That is a stunning set of results. You've seen it with LAFC as well. On the road, they've had some big losses, including to Portland. They lost 3-0 to, to Seattle. I mean, do, do you just put it down to just a weird travel situation, Stephen, or is there more to it? Huh. You know, earthquakes play that weird system, right, where they're man marking all the time. And I guess part of me wonders, does it take people a while to figure that out? And like the second time you play them, it's a lot easier to break them down because you've seen it before. Um, the travel's a great point, right? Like Sounders drew earthquakes nil-nil in Orlando in their first game at MLS's back and then beat them 7-1 in Seattle, right? Um, it's, it's hard to say. It's a, it, there are a lot of competing things. They're playing a stupid system, but they've got a really smart coach. They've got a stupid front office, but they're making good additions to the roster. It's, it's weird calculus there, Michael. I don't know that I understand it all. Losing Erickson in the middle of this season, I think has, 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 has played a role. Uh, I think he's one of those people who it's not just his contributions on the pitch, the tan, the, the, the tangible things that you can, see in XG stats or, or, or whatever. I think it's the intangible like leadership and connectiveness that he brings to the team. Like, I don't know when I watch him play, like I get the sense that like the way I see him communicating with his teammates, that he's a, like a passionate person who cares and who like you want to, you like, you want to, you want to be on your team or you want to, you want to play with. So I, I think that that's played some, that's had some role in it. Um, but I mean, yeah, they, some of those games, like when you watch those highlights and you see them just getting hammered, um, it, it, it's, it's weird to then see them uh, yeah, these last couple of games or whatever, win, win games 2-1. Um, but I, I, think, I think that f- for those reasons, because the, it's, it's so weird, they're, they're or not so weird, sorry, they're unique, their approach is so unique, I think that they could still somehow do it. And by do it, I mean be one of the top eight teams and qualify for the playoffs. Because, I mean, for me, that's the thing with the Whitecaps. It's like, 
for from MDS's point of view, he wants to get into the playoffs, and I think he would see that as a as a big victory with everything that they've gone through. And in all honesty, it would be because this is not easy for the players what they're going through. I know other teams are going through it, but the only teams that's really going through it the way that the Whitecaps are 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 Toronto and Montreal, and Montreal's been quite up and down as well. And even Toronto's had the the, the odd late laps or whatever, but. It then comes down to, is there any point in making the playoffs? Because every game that we've seen them play against a top team, they're not even at the races. They're not. They're not competing. It's it's maybe a morale boosting thing, Stephen. But if they get there, I know anything can happen in a one-off cup game. You just don't fancy them to do anything once they get there. After having gone so far backwards since 2017. I think that even just making the playoffs would be a big step for this franchise. I think that with the number of clubs who have come in who are spending big and with the stratification we've seen between top and bottom, it's going to get harder for people to come into the playoffs and do well without having been there before. And that almost necessitates a year of, of just, you know, dud play once you're in there, just to, just to get your feet under you a little bit. Um, so I'd do almost anything to see the Whitecaps in a playoff game, even if they get beaten five zip. But it's not going to happen, right? Um, I, I look forward to when we have a Whitecaps playoff game where they're a huge underdog because that would be a step ahead of where we are. I mean, Steve, here's a question from the chat that I'll put to you uh, from Randy D. Not really so much a question as a, as a statement. The owners have zero interest to challenge for a championship. These are the same people who are proud of one single sad playoff victory. They want an adequate product, bland and safe. The amount that we, like that 5-0 win over San Jose, that's like held up as this big pinnacle thing. But it was one playoff game. And then in the matches that really mattered, we did fuck all. Yeah, and I think it's more, I'm not going to say that they don't care about winning a title because they probably do, but I think they want to do it in, um, spending the least amount of money. That's what I feel like. like they efficient. just want to efficient. Yeah, I guess the they want to be efficient, more efficient. Title going. Yeah, so I think they. I think that's what they're looking at. And and when you're if when you, you and, and to the point, I think uh, where Zach said that they are afraid to make mistakes and they're afraid to take chances. It feels like that they're because uh, they, at, at the beginning of their run in MLS, they were spending money on you know typical not high profile players like Kenny Miller and Barry Robson was a player that they spent money on. So they were showing that point of view, but something happened there where that they just didn't, they just stopped at that point at some point. And they just tried to go as, as cheap as possible. And they, they tried to, I don't know. I don't know if the, the greed of the Alfonso Davies sale uh, turned them into wanting to buy younger players so they could sell them off or profit or whatever like that. I'm, I, I just can't put a point, uh, put a finger on what caused them to turn and change their ways. Because they were doing it at the beginning mm-hmm. of the Robo uh, yeah. period too, where they were doing stuff where they were spending money. And then halfway through, they said, no, we're not doing that anymore. Well, that's because they were turning their focus on to developing the homegrown so they could then sell them. I, 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 I haven't verified this, and this might take us down on a massive tangent, but I think someone was, was researching and posted in the, the Whitecaps Facebook fan page or whatever and said that, Vancouver and Seattle in the MLS era have had the same number of designated players, something like 15 players. But 
obviously when you look at the the, the vast uh, golf and quality in them, um, that's where the, the you know that's where the the proof is in the pudding, right? Are you trying to say the Joaquin Ardiez is not on the same level as Nicolas Ladero? Well, you could say that maybe, but nobody would argue that Ladero can hold a candle to Mustafa Jarju. True, true. I mean, he's infamous. Who's going to be talking about Ladero in a couple of years' time? Actually, probably most folk. But well, didn't he score against the Man- Manchester City? Charge you? Was no, he the one? no, no, no. Played. He played. It was Camilo who scored. Yeah, but he that, that was the most uh, effort he showed in the game, though. No, he scored Manchester. in a as if you check For the sure. AFT in Canada YouTube channel, he scored in a reserve game in Portland, a stunning free kick. I captured it on video. I, I no one would believe video. me. I have seen that video. It's one of our most watched videos because everyone's like, no, nah, he doesn't score goals. Michael, you need to tweet that out tomorrow. <laughs> and I think, I think Jarju was the one that was rumored to be like, as soon as he got off the plane, that he goes like, I, I don't want to be yes. here. I want to no, go more back. That's, yes. that's, that's not rumor. That's, that's true. Straight, that's straight out of his peers' mouth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, know, you know who told me that? Uh, Ridge, Ridge told me that. Because mm, he just hung around with him the whole time, didn't he? Yeah. So, yeah at the end of that season... They're having a team ending ending a meal together or whatever, and Mustafa didn't want to go. He just hung out with Ridge over at uh, at the uh, the house, the apartment building. Anyway, now we don't know when we're going to get Stephen back on the the show again, and we we don't want to keep everyone for too much longer. Um, so I just I like to put Stephen on the spot when I've got him on the show. I like to do this with Jonathan as well. Let's look at the Western Conference just now. Who's your tip? To finish the regular season on top, and who do you think will be the Western representatives in the MLS Cup as things are currently shaping up? I think it is hard to make a case for anyone else besides the Seattle Sounders. I, I thought you would they... say that, and I don't really disagree with you. I, I think Portland could beat them. I think Portland has a, has a great squad that might be built specifically to counter what Seattle does. But uh, I... I don't know if anybody else in the conference has displayed the level that Sounders have. It will be interesting to see what happens to Seattle when they play a side who is better defensively, like SKC or Minnesota, maybe. I was going to mention that because part of this weirdness is the schedules are skewed because not every team is playing each other. So you've already had the Whitecaps playing six games against Eastern Conference teams, for example, not taking points off the rivals. The flip side of that is they haven't lost points to their rivals at, at the same time. But then you've got the fact that, that the Whitecaps, I mean, they've only actually got eight games left to play. I thought it was nine. So who they're playing in their remaining games are San Jose, RSL, LAFC, LA Galaxy, San Jose again, Seattle again, Portland and the Galaxy again. So they're not playing Houston. They're not playing Colorado they're not playing teams that they would maybe want to be playing to try and take some points off them, like Dallas. So they've lost out on that. KC as well are in a mishmash where they're even playing Eastern Conference teams. They do have Polito back because he, he's been back and he was scoring to, tonight. So I think the only thing for me that might stop Seattle just now is Johnny Russell and Sporting Kansas City. I think I think the best thing Seattle has going for them is they get KC at home most likely if things go the way that they have been. Um, mm. I, I think if Sounders get to host playoff games, that's going to be tough to knock them out. Um, 
I, I don't really know what to tell you except for this is comfortably the best side Seattle's ever had, and they've won two MLS Cups before. It doesn't mean they'll do it again, but they're they're head and shoulders above any that that's what I can say for certain. They're head and shoulders above anything they've ever had before. And are you going to play uh, Toronto in the final against Stephen? I think that would be hilarious. I'd much rather have no. it happen here. I don't really want to figure out if I'm flying to Connecticut or Toronto or New Jersey on like 10 days notice. But I Would, you, just, would I, you do that? Would you go? You know, I, I've, made, I've made the other ones. If it's in the U.S., it'll be hard for me not to. Um, I actually, I found out, I just started class a couple days ago for fall quarter, and it turns out my calculus final is on the same day as MLS Cup. And you can call this cocky, but I've already put in that I'll be busy. That's confident. I I haven't booked any time off for for the Whitecaps. Will, will they actually play the the final in the home stadium, or will they play it in a neutral site too? Because oh. basically, I'll use baseball as an example. Baseball has decided to play their playoffs in a neutral site and kind of bubble it again. We That's were talking about this. Is Toronto going to play in Connecticut? Are they going to play in New Jersey? Are they going to move them to DC or Atlanta or Orlando? I mean, who knows, right? Mm. Uh, yeah, you guys are missing the most important thing, Stephen. How wait when you have an exam? How do you get out of it? So you email the professor like the very first day of class, and you're like, "Man, I got to work the day of the final," and and you see what happens. And you can call me crazy. I'm going to take the class next quarter if they won't let me move it. But I, it's it's not that I think Seattle's going to be in there necessarily. It's that I think there's a pretty good shot it's Seattle or Portland, and that'll make that day very busy for me. Yeah. The, the last thing I want to talk about with MLS, have you guys heard what happened tonight in the, the DC United match against Atlanta? No, I haven't heard anything. Does it involve Jordi Reyna? No, surprisingly. <laughs> <laughs> but we were talking about bad refereeing. How is this for bad refereeing? DC United made two halftime substitutions. I heard about this. Oh, I do know about this. One of them was a guy called Russell Canoose, who wasn't on the list of substitutes and played for four minutes before someone realised he wasn't an eligible sub. They then spent 10 minutes checking their phones and the rules to see what they could do about it before pulling them back off and letting another sub come on. MLS. They lost 4-0. So at least you know Atlanta won't be requesting a forfeit 3-0. I was going to say, for the integrity of the league, they've got to go with the forfeit, right? Yeah. It's like what, the only time you'll ever see the recipient protest. Wow. I don't know. I think Phoenix should be protesting at being given a 3-0 win after what happened in their game against San Diego. They're losing 3-1. Most folk will know this, but if anyone doesn't, there's a homophobic slur thrown. San Diego walked off the pitch and they lost the game because they walked off the pitch 3-0 and the Phoenix head coach didn't see what all the fuss was about and just wanted things to go on. I'm paraphrasing ever so slightly. Their head coach had said something like, it's soccer, man. These things happen. Unbelievable in, in this day and age. I watched your the YouTube video that you posted or the, the video that you posted on oh, Twitter. Oh, the subtitles, yeah. It's a, I mean, like, that was un- unbelievable. Like, Talking about referees having a nightmare as well. Oh. He sends a guy off that's been abused because he's misunderstood what's going on. It's like, oh. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. USL really needs to step in and do something. That's what I wanted to touch on. I, I thought that was really troubling, the, the initial officiating, where like you're, 
you're supposed to prepare for your referee assignments, right? And like, frankly, you should know if you're going to be a refereeing a game that has the only out player in American sports participating in it. Okay. And to then, I, the way I understand it, Martin goes, did you call me a, and then yeah. uses, I believe the slur that he used against him for, for the referee to not, to not realize and to not process in the moment that the only out player in North American sports is not going to use homophobic slurs against his opponent. I just, to me, that was so troubling in and of itself. And I, and I really think that that, that initial decision needs more analysis there. And I, I just, I, I'm really troubled by that. Yeah, and it comes a week after, or I think it was a week after, maybe two weeks after, LAFC 2, no, LA Galaxy 2, sorry, one of their players had racially abused one of the San Diego players. So if there was any team that was not going to do a slur of any kind, it was going to be San Diego. But, I mean, Landon Donovan, we've given him a lot of stick in this show. He's not Mr. Popular in North American soccer. Nothing but respect for what he did in that cir- circumstances. He was just so confused. And he gave the Phoenix head coach a chance to sub off the player. And he said, if you don't sub him off, we're going we're gonna to take some action. And he's like, no, I'm not taking him off. And now the player and the coach has been suspended. Coach then the opposing coach tried to, even a couple of days later, tried to backtrack what he, was try- what he was saying. But it was clear what he was saying, especially, like you said, that ESPN... The fact that they subtitled it and, and and got the audio up and everything like that, it was clear what he was talking about. So, yeah, good on the good on them to to take uh, to take take a stand and basically walk off the pitch. And then, what about the Phoenix owner uh, inciting some type of fake conspiracy that that Martin apparently cooked up, according to the owner? Did, oh did no, that that, that, that I've not heard. Oh my God, you guys have to see this. This was the most unbelievable part. The owner goes and texts somebody and starts accusing, starts accusing Martin of having made this up and manufactured this. Oh my God, if you give me just a minute, I'll pull it up. Here, sure. wait, wait just a moment for me. The way that his teammates came to his defense shows that it wasn't made up. Like you couldn't make that stuff up. And the fact that they walked off the pitch, uh, it's not like they were looking for an uh, advantage of any kind either. Uh, in the game, like like you're talking about subbing the player off. Yeah, they, they could have subbed the player off. He wasn't even asking for him to be sent off and go down a man. Or yeah, something like that. and they were they were already three one down in a game anyway. But the the other thing, like I was talking to someone on Twitter about this as well, because they said, well, let's hope they really throw the the book at, at Flemings for this. The problem USL might have is the referee didn't hear the original slur. As far as I know, it hasn't been picked up on audio. So if there's no other witnesses, it is Fleming's against Colin Martin's. And it's then him against him. So I don't know how much USL can actually do to punish him if they've only got the two people saying, I didn't say that, you did say that. that that's where things could get a little bit messy for USL. You're right, Michael, if it turns into a... Uh... This person said, that person said, it uh, It could be a problem. But, like, I, you just hope that this will be resolved. And this doesn't feel like, you know, in Italy, the excuse in Italy is, yeah, they don't mean what they're saying. They're just trying to throw you off off your game. Oh, yeah. Just, yeah. Like, I don't think that's what this is. 
Um, and because that's not part of the, the, I don't think that's part of the culture uh, uh, quite in North America. And so, yeah, I mean, again, hopefully USL will be able to uh, take action to, to, well, I think, rec- yeah, rectify, rectify the, the result of the match and then deal with the situation in a way, in a way that, in a way that make that makes sense and that it brings justice to the whole situation. But you got the link, Steve, Stephen? Yeah, I um, I sent it to the AFTN Twitter account. So here are this guy's messages. This is apparently the owner of Phoenix Rising FC, but th- this is pretty bad. So, uh, so yeah, if everyone can see that, we'll just read a little bit. He said, I, "I I want to speak to you personally because I appreciate you engaging. Uh, do you believe him? Yes or no? I don't know who to believe. Our player and his teammates who were able to hear completely deny him saying it. There is a big backstory to SD this week after their match last week. You know the story of that match, yes? So this is Brandon McCarthy, who's the owner of Phoenix. And who is he talking to? He is speaking to uh, Mike Dickerson, who um, I, I, I don't particularly know if Mike Dickerson is a, is a sports journalist or not. I believe he might just be a, a Phoenix Rising enthusiast. Oh, wow, interesting. Uh, no, um, I'm sorry, appears to be in L.A. Looks to be L.A.-based. Uh, okay. I, I cannot tell you why Phoenix Rising's owner has chosen to engage in this. I, there is no clear Bizarre. reason. And then it says, your statement clearly implies you believe your player, making you a biased actor in this drama. You didn't choose to highlight the other side's info, just your own. You could have waited to say anything. Why are you even on Twitter? Shouldn't you be talking to your players, coaches, etc.? And then the owner replies, okay, well, they wanted to forfeit tonight's match. We only found out Monday night that we were playing. They wanted to continue their statement. Then this happens. It's the context behind things that we don't understand. Oh, and then the guy says, are you accusing San Diego of making up a slur to forward a narrative as if they wanted the game called off? They were leading 3-1. Anyway, uh, we don't know. How can we? If our player and the rest of our guys say it didn't occur... The ref told our player he didn't hear him say it. What are we supposed to believe? And this then comes back to what I was saying. The issue of it's a he said, he said situation. And what do USL do in that case? And then the Dickerson guy says, this is worse than the slur. You're accusing the only gay male player in major pro sports of making up a slur for publicity. If he's found to have said this, he's gone. My whole point is we're in fact finding mode. It, we just need to know what actually happened. He says, your tweet suggested you believe your players. That's not fact-finding. Also, you made up a conspiracy theory out of thin air. I said he unequivocally denies it, and a statement is coming. That's just passing along. He doesn't see... It doesn't say what I believe. I get how it looks. I know how I look. It's not good. You just claimed there may be a conspiracy to make your team look homophobic. Do you have any evidence for that? Do you understand how serious that claim is in context? There also may not be. There's a chance our player is lying to us. My point is that we're trying to find out what really happened so we can act. So why the hell go on Twitter? Wow. So I hope that was worth your time anyways. That was. I just, that was one of... That's our, our little like, group chat thought that was one of the craziest things we've ever seen, so... Not a lot leaves me speechless. That's like... I don't understand an owner engaging. Like, I don't know how well he knows this guy. Yeah, he's not even engaging a reporter or anything like that. He's just encouraging a regular person. He should actually close his DM so nobody can access them or something I mean, like that. Did like, he not think the guy he's messaging was going to put all that stuff out there? 
Yeah, it doesn't make... Maybe he thinks DMs are private or something like that. Anyway, that is it for the MLS chat. We will be back talking a little bit of Gold Cup and hearing some audio from John Herdman and Greg Berhalter. And we're going to get to that after this. Hi, I'm Alfonso Davies, and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. Welcome back to the penultimate part of this week's AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio 101.9 FM. And kicking off this part was a song from 1981 by iconic Scottish punk band The Exploited from their Punk's Not Dead album. That was Dole Q. Yes, life in the doll in the 1980s, life in the doll was no fun under Thatcher and her government. You don't want me going into all that just now, I'm sure. I could fill the whole part talking about stuff like that. But that was, as I mentioned, the second of tonight's Three for Kind songs. We had The Last Resort kicking off part four with Never Get a Job. They exploited there with Dole kicking off this part. Have you worked out what the link might be yet? And if you have, what do you think the song will be that we will kick off part six with? Any ideas? We'll find out if you're right very soon. So enough about all the domestic football action. Let's turn our attentions now to the international side of the game. And on Tuesday night, we got the draw for the 2021 Gold Cup, which is going to be taking place in the US between the 10th of July and the 1st of August next year. All things COVID considered. And the draw threw up some exciting groups. Group A sees Mexico, El Salvador, Curaçao and the winner of a preliminary match that's going to be getting played before the tournament. Group C sees Costa Rica, Jamaica, Suriname and another preliminary match winner. And Group D sees Honduras, Panama, Grenada and Qatar. That was the group I was hoping Canada were going to land in. Unfortunately, in some regards, they are drawn in what I am going to class the group of death. Group B, alongside America, Martinique, who are just an unknown proposition at times, like a box of chocolates in Forrest Gump, you just don't know what you're going to get from them. And also the winner of preliminary match seven. Now, you'd be thinking, well, that's fine. It's a preliminary group winner. What could go wrong there? That's bound to be an easy game for them. Well, if all things play out the way they should, that Group 7 winner is likely to be Haiti. 
who play St Vincent and Grenadines in the first round match. And if they can get past those two countries, they're going to play the winner of Bermuda and Barbados. And whoever wins that one goes to the Gold Cup. Now, an added little bit of excitement for me in that one is Barbados could have a former East Fife player called up for them. We're starting to push to get Nathan Fash Austin called up by Barbados. He is interested. He might put some feelers out. We've already put some feelers out. So that'll be a fun one for us to watch. But you're not here to listen to us going on about that. All you care about, I'm sure, is the potential US-Canada matchup in the first round group game. Zach, Steve, Stephen and myself will be back to chat about that draw in the next part of the show. But for this part, I'm going to bring you some audio now after the draw was made from the two head coaches. First of all, we're going to hear a little bit from Canada head coach John Herdman. Then we're going to hear from the US national team head coach Greg Berhalter. And I wear it for my lady, the Canadian flag, baby! And I'm sure the game against the U.S. you know stands out, you know, for all the rivalry reasons and the Nations League games and all. Are. Do you worry about at all about it getting over, maybe even a little overcooked in terms of the hype? Uh, no, no, I don't worry about it. I think um, it just is what it is. That that match means a lot to to our players. It'll be the game that I'm sure all the players will want to play in. And, you know, you can't hide that rivalry. It sort of ignited uh, last October and November. And I think from that, it's, it's created a healthy rivalry where it, it'll be a good match. Uh, and the players will, will certainly circle that on the, on the Gold Cup schedule. I'm sure it's been a frustrating year for you not having the, the time with the team that you would have expected and, and the matches. But when you look ahead to 2021 now and you look at, a, the number of matches you're going to get and, and also the importance of those matches across World Cup qualifying and, and the Gold Cup. Uh, how big a year is, is this going to be coming up for the programme? Yeah, it's a, it's a very big year. I think when you combine Olympic U23's World Cup qualification and then a Gold Cup, it's a unique, very unique situation to, to be in. I think for all of the national teams that are competing, and then to throw in a global pandemic and, and not having that certainty of where we might be as a, as a football industry, as, as a football nation, uh, even come March, maybe even June. I mean, nobody really knows what the future is going to hold. But, you know, what's clear is there's a path in place for us. Um, we have an opportunity to qualify for a World Cup with some critical games. And then on the back of that, there's a Gold Cup and, and an Olympic Games. So... It'll be a busy year for sure, and as an organization, we'll have to be ready for it. Considering the state of Canadian football and considering where your players are um, throughout this year and looking towards 2021, how prime would you say are the conditions or will the conditions be for your players heading into not only Gold Cup, but as you mentioned, uh, you know, Olympic Games and stuff like that as well? I think it's a, it's a real complex period of, of planning for, you know, the whole 
men's national team program and it'll be the same for every every country that are competing at various events whether it's the world cup the u23s or the gold cup i think there that there's some complexity around player release during that window the top top players will be going through a win uh, sorry a summer break uh, getting themselves ready for pre-season some of them will be moving into pre-season during that june window where either the CONCACAF Nations League Final Four will happen or for Canada, the World Cup qualification. And then some three weeks later, the players then will be called up again for a Gold Cup. So, you know, for Canada, we started to build some depth in our squads. The, the Canadian Premier League's provided a, a new base of professional players. And, you know, we've, over the Nations League, we've been able to, put over 40 plus players on the field. So, you know, I think the reality for Canada is the, the prime responsibility is to qualify for a World Cup in 2022. That's that's our key focus. And, you know, the June window, we'll probably have to choose, you know, which players will be in June and which players will be in the Gold Cup. I mean, that's, that's a reality for us at the clubs. Uh, while they'll work with national bodies, um, they also have a pre-season to get themselves ready for and pre-season games that will be taking place throughout July and August. So, yeah, I think there's there's some real planning uh, to be undertaken during this, uh, this remainder of 2020 to get us all set and ready uh, into 2021, which will be the most congested period, I think, in our nation's history. So I heard you addressing uh, the U.S. game. Uh... What are your thoughts about Martinique? They always seem to be a bit of a wild card. Yeah, we we had experience um, of Martinique in the Gold Cup last year, and I think there's there's always which Martinique is going to turn up for the Gold Cup. When you look at the the depth in their players, they can choose from a number of different leagues around the world. There's some strong Martinique players that could attend the Gold Cup, so it's always a, a wild card. Neil, which, you know, two weeks before, is it going to be a, a genuine competitive uh, Martinique team or a one that, you know, Canada has enough depth to uh, to compete and, and win against? So, again, it's, it, it's an unknown, but uh, what we do know is we had some good experience against them in the last Gold Cup, and that's always good for our players' confidence. Which is, I, I know it, it's, you know, next summer, it's still a ways off, and there's lots to do between now and then. But given everything that has happened this year and how long it's been, uh, you know, since the last time any of the major CONCACAF nations were playing international football, does it feel odd to to be preparing to play international football again when it's been such a while? Yeah, it's it, it it's been a surreal experience. I've been an international coach for you know fifteen plus years, where every FIFA window you've you've just been on a roll of planning for a window into a tournament and and to be in this this period now of planning to get ready to get ready and then it's cancelled to get ready and you're planning for collecting FIFA points then you're planning now for a, a qualification knockout and then those games get cancelled I think the the reality is for all of us we have to stay in contact with the players, which which we've done. And we have got to try and plan for whatever is put in front of us. And, 
at this stage, what's put in front of us is March. That's the next time we're back together. And for Canada, we've got to make sure that it's not the first time our players have been together for more than you know 16 months before they have two training sessions to play a World Cup qualification match. That's that's what's you know crazy about this. That you know your you know your future of a World Cup could could rest on two training sessions. And and you know some of it is out of your control. So we're going to try our best to uh, bring our players together in, in whatever way we can to ensure there is some team spirit, some team chemistry, that cohesion that you're going to need against tough teams like Bermuda, tough teams like Suriname, um, to even get us into that uh, that octagon and ultimately ready for a Gold Cup as well. Priorit prioritizing competitions is, is definitely going to be an issue for, for you guys. Where does this Gold Cup rank? I know that World Cup qualifiers obviously is probably most important, but Olympics are there as well. That's another curveball into the mix. Um, and I know you want to win everything. So rather than where does the Gold Cup rank, I actually want to ask you, how do you juggle with, with all these competitions? You know, that, that's a great question, Ika. And one thing I would say is that, um, you know, there are a lot of competitions. And what that means is it's opportunity for players. Um, it's opportunity for players to show that they, they belong, that they, they should be part of the first team, so to speak. So, um, you know, no matter what competition we're in, every time the players step on the field, they, they prove that they, they can wear the jersey and that they want to be part of the starting group, the squad, whatever that may be. But the CONCACAF Gold Cup represents the premier tournament in our confederation, um, and it's a chance to win a trophy. And this, this is a young team that, that hasn't won a trophy yet, so we're certainly going to be, be trying to accomplish that in this tournament. Um, we, we just spoke to John Herman, who mentions, you know, how challenging the kind of congested calendar is going to be next year. What are you kind of anticipating in terms of how you're going to deal with clubs and maybe how you might have to change your squad uh, between windows just with the amount of games you're facing? Yeah, well, that would be exactly it. You know, it's going to be good communication. Um, it's going to be looking at a lot of different players. It's going to, it's going to be juggling some players in, in certain cases. But, you know, the next, next year, 2021, represents a chance to win two trophies with the Nations League and the CONCACAF Gold Cup. And then to get a really good start in qualifying, you know, it looks like we're going to be playing, um, you know, eight games in, in 2021 of qualifying. So that's a big chunk of games that we can, we can make a dent on starting to reach some of our goals of qualifying for the World Cup. You talked about it's a balancing act, and, but just in terms of getting guys released, I mean, especially like with the Olympics and then all these competitions kind of piling on, you know, how, how difficult is that going to be? Well, the clubs are obligated to release the players for the for this event. Um, so that you know, that's that's part of it. Um, you know, whenever the the release date is, it may be June twenty eighth. That you know, the clubs are obligated to release the players. To us, this represents more than that. It represents relationships and work and communication and really talking to the clubs and and trying to piece together what makes most sense for the player. You know, if I asked you, is it reasonable for a player to play a whole season? then go to Nations League, then go to Gold Cup, then start preseason again without a break, you know, it's probably not reasonable for that. So we're going to have to juggle the squad a little bit. We're going to, um, you know, still be competing for, for trophies, but there will be a certain amount of juggling we need to do. Did the shift in schedule, moving the, the 
the Nations League to June and then bumping, excuse me, the start of qualifying from before the Gold Cup to after the Gold Cup change your calculus at all about how you want to use the Gold Cup. It, it, may, be, it may be your first chance to get sort of your A team together uh, before qualifying as opposed to before. If qualifying started before the Gold Cup, it would have made maybe more sense to rest guys during that period. So I'm just wondering how your, your outlook toward the tournament has changed as a result of that schedule shift. Well, we're, it's something we're definitely considering, Brian. Um, when you think about getting the uh, what you just say, getting our, the whole group together, right? We'll have an opportunity in March to do that. Um, we'll have an opportunity in June to do that, and then the Gold Cup could be an opportunity, and then you know, then it's qualifiers. So you know, either way, um, you know, it, it's still looking at the players' workload and the players' schedule, and we have to be mindful of that. That's really important in this whole process, but. We certainly want to get our group together. We want to get our group playing together before qualifying. Look, it's been a while since the national team program has played. And at this point, given all the circumstances, I know you guys want to get together in November in some form, but does it feel odd to, to think about how long it's been and, and not being certain of when it might next be, despite everyone's best efforts, hopes, and whatnot? You know, I mean, part of the uncertainty is what we're dealing with in our everyday lives, right? I mean, nothing feels certain anymore, right? Um, and, and that's just something we have to adapt to. We have to be flexible. We have to make the best possible decisions with the information we have. And we have to plan. And then when we plan, if something doesn't go our way, we have to, we have to use an alternate plan and, um, and keep going. But, you know, it is, it is challenging for international managers right now with the lack of playing time. It's great to see Europe back playing um, internationally. Hopefully South America will, will get going again also. And, you know, world soccer has to restart again. And, um, you know, we need to look, to what, we need to look for ways to, um, to do that. And uh, we're, we're doing that now. Just kind of following on from what Jonathan said there, could you maybe talk us through what does an average week look like for you just now? Is it just a lot of looking at players and trying to work out who you might want to bring in or what is it like on a week to week basis? So what we're doing is we're, we're actually as a staff, we're in the office twice a week, um, Monday and uh, sorry, Wednesday and Thursday, but Monday is used for um, scouting individually. So we have, we're all signed to watch players. You know, we have a ton of players in the MLS, ton of players in Europe, all playing and, and we're watching them carefully. Tuesdays when we have a call and we recap all the performances of the players. Um, we have a, a scouting platform that we use to do that. They're all evaluated. Um, Wednesday, Thursday, we're in the office working on, um, you know, our game model type of things, working on, um, watching opponents, watching phases of play of other teams, just getting deep into soccer. And then Friday, we have another call to end the week. Uh, and then on the weekend, we're watching games again. So, you know, it, it's a cycle. We'd like to have the tension of preparing for an opponent, of preparing the team to play, of picking a squad. But unfortunately, we don't have that at the moment. So we have to make the best of it. John Herdman talked about how those games last fall sort of ignited the rivalry. How, how do you see that matchup uh, and that rivalry that's uh... – developing with Canada. Yeah, I mean, guys, the thing is, is when we played them, you know, even prior to the game in Canada, I, I, I was saying to the media that this is a very good generation of players that they, that they have. I mean, like, it's, it's a really good time for Canadian football. I mean, Alfonso Davies is obviously spearheading that whole effort, but then you look at Jonathan David, who's, who's an excellent player. You look at um, Cavallini, who's an excellent player. You look at uh, Rich Larea, what he's been doing. You look at 
Um, you know, Scott Arfeld, who's a really good soccer player. Then they have Jonathan Osorio. And, you know, it's a, it's a good team. And I've said that all along. Jonathan, uh, uh, Mark Anthony Kay is, is excellent player. So they have talent. And it's just for them about putting it together and, and competing as a team. And they've, and they've been shown to, to be making progress on that. So they were two challenging games when we played them. Um, you know, they kicked our butt up in Toronto and, and we beat them pretty good in Orlando. And we're looking forward to playing them in the Gold Cup because we know it's going to be a really competitive game. Canadian men national team head coach John Herdman and US national team head coach Greg Berhalter there. Some interesting things. We'll talk a little bit about that. Bring you this week's wavelength as we wrap up Football Violence Awareness Month and a new section of the show. And all of that is coming up after this. This is Atiba Hutchinson and you're listening to the AFTN Show. Chelsea Cup, can a strong bow on a mess? Desperately clutching on to a leaf-long depression. Supplied to me by the NHS. It's anyone's guess how I got here. Anyone's guess how I'll go. I suck on a roll-up, pull your jeans up, fuck off. I'm going home, job seeker. Job seeker. So, Mr. Williamson, what have you done in order to find gainful employment since your last signing on date? Fuck all. I sat around the house wanking, and I want to know why you don't serve coffee here. My signing on time's supposed to be ten past eleven. It's now twelve o'clock, and some of you strange bastards need executing. Mr. Williamson, your employment history looks quite impressive. I'm looking at three managerial positions you previously held with quite reputable companies. Isn't this something you'd like to go back to? Nah, I just end up fucking robbing the place. You've got a till full of 20s looking at your day. Well, I'm either going to fucking bank it, I've got drugs to take, and a mind to break. Welcome back to the final part of tonight's AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. And kicking off this part, it's the last of tonight's Three of a Kind selections. Have you worked out what the link is? That was a song from 2008 from English band Sleaford Mods from their album Mekon, and that was Job Seeker. So we had kicking off part four, The Last Resort, Never Get a Job. Kicking off part five, They Exploited, with Dole Q. And kicking off this part, Sleaford Mods, with Job Seeker. And this week's link, my wife got it, did you? Job seeking, unemployment, things of that ilk. So well done if you got this week's link. We will be back with another three of a kind next week. But we're going to keep the musical theme going in this part as we bring you this week's wavelength. Now, sadly, as you know, we did not bring you a show last weekend, which meant we did not get closure on Football Violence Awareness Month. So I thought I've got two options. I can either bring you the final song on this week's show 
or I can extend Football Violence Awareness Month throughout October as well. Well, we decided just to do the former. I know, I know, you're disappointed, but we want to keep these back so you've got lots more football violence songs to look forward to over the course of the next year or so. But we thought we would round this one off in some style. We've been a little bit multicultural so far in the songs that we've picked this month. We've had songs from France, from England. Let's go even further afield now and head down to New Zealand. And a post-punk band formed in 1996 called Gobsmacked. That's G-O-B-S-M-A-K-T. And this is a song taken from their 1998 album, You What? This is the fifth track in the album. This is Gobsmacked with Yobsmacked. All the way from New Zealand, gobsmacked there with their song, Yobsmacked, rounding off this month's Football Violence Awareness Month. But worry not, that will return in March. As I mentioned, you can find that song on their 1998 album, You What? But you can also find it on the 2001 CD reissue of the Football Hooligans CD, Trouble on the Terraces. Check out that one if you can. A lot of the songs we've had on Wavelength so far feature on that, and there's some other ones on it we've got to feature in the months to come. Of course, we'll be back with more Wavelength next week, and we're also going to be back with a new musical section later on in this part, so stay tuned for that. But for now, let's get back to the football chat. Let's get back to the Gold Cup chat. And before the break there, we heard from Canadian men's national team head coach John Herdman, and US national team head coach Greg Berhalter. So, 
bring Stephen, Steve and Zach back in to kind of chat about some of the stuff that was discussed there and look ahead at the, the Gold Cup draw. Well, first of all, did, did you guys watch the draw? Was that not painful as hell to watch? I missed it. Oh, it, you're lucky. It, but it was better than the, the I think, what was it Alexi Lalas or someone admitted that finally this is the first time they've actually had an actual draw? That all the other draws were just yeah. choosing what they wanted or how they thought it would work best or, or whatever. But yeah, it was it wasn't it wasn't you know the as some of the other draws you know you Champions League and World Cups and whatever. But it wasn't I, I don't know I mean, it wasn't enthralling, but it wasn't terrible. I I sorry I didn't think it was terrible. I just find it a tough watch. So let's get to the 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 main thing we want to talk about here. It's thrown up. America against Canada. The balls were coming out. I was really hoping for Honduras as number one or Costa Rica. When they both went, I was like, great. You've got a choice of America or Mexico. And we got America. One and one in the last two games against them. But it's also Martinique and some playoffs. Isn't it likely Haiti? That makes it a slightly tougher group then. What was your thoughts, Stephen, on another American-Canadian matchup? You know, Michael, it's it's hard to say. Um, the 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 thing that 2020 has done for me is it has trained me to not uh, display so much hubris about how far in the future I am able to prognosticate. <laughs> it is almost impossible for me to imagine what next July will look like, let alone what a specific soccer match in it will will do. Um, you know, maybe it'll be 11 elephants against 11 giraffes. I don't know. Um, oh, they should I'm, be good I'm, in the air, though. There you go. No, Better um, defending I, set pieces in the white caps. I, I think Canada's come along. Um, I think that uh, it's hard to assess exactly where the U.S. is right now because the, the, their generation's so young and they haven't been tested so much yet. Um, but it's the, the, the overwhelming emotion for me. It's, it's too far away to know anything. Steve, what do you do? You get excited by a American Canada matchup? The thing is, is it, uh, the one positive you can look at it is if they do like uh, the top two teams advance from each group, if I'm not mistaken, right? I think so. Be, yeah, four. if the top two teams advance, and they that means that they avoid them in the knockout stages. In that case, so it, you could look at it a positive there. Um, but honestly, if Canada wants to. Um, make a name for itself in CONCACAF. Sometimes you got to, you know, play the best weather. Even if you don't defeat them, if you're competitive against them, we'll play better than what you have in previous years. I know they just beat them recently, but to beat them or be competitive on U.S. soil, um, that's something that they're going to have to do eventually, whether it's next Gold Cup, the Gold Cup in five years or six years or seven years. I don't know how often they do these things. Uh, but they, 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 they're going to have to do it, especially considering the Gold Cup's always in the U.S., Mm. So, yeah. What both head coaches talked about, Zach, was they don't actually know what players are going to be getting next year because you've got Olympic qualifying, you've got World Cup qualifying, you've got the Gold Cup that may or may not fall within a, a window for getting players released, and it's the summer. You also don't know what international travel is going to be like. You could find that this is a tournament played with just domestic Canadian and American players and Mexican players which could put a whole different spin on things. Yeah, there's a, a lot of unknown variables, like uh, all facets of our lives right now. Um, 
I'm, we, we've sort of talked in the past, but I really wish that uh, Canada, and I, I don't know how the schedules overlap and all that kind of stuff, but like you talk about like Olympic stuff, like I think to me, Canada should, should go all out in something like the Olympic tournament. You know what I mean? Like they have so many good young players. I'd rather, I'd rather see them excel at that than, you know, get to the knockout stage or the quarterfinal or semifinal or even final of the gold cup. Like how? That, yeah. That's the other thing is like, who do you play in what tournament? Well, in the past, the, the approach has always been, you always push the person to the highest level yeah. you know, that they can, which we've seen, you know, the white caps do with their residency program, which I believe it costs them at least one, one title for the, the residency team. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily think that's the best. I think you, I think you can, um, one, I think you can help a cult, build the culture of, of, of winning uh, and winning, not just winning matches, but winning something tangible. Um, and, uh, and two, I, I think it also helps those, those players like gel, those players gel together, those younger players. Because five, five, you're right, five years later, they're going to be playing in that, uh, with the World Cup yeah. in 2026. So why not put that strong group of players that are U23s together in the Olympics? Five years later, they're going to be, you know, 26 to 28 in their prime. And they've already played uh, uh, in one tournament, like a high-end tournament like that in the past. So I think it's a good idea. I think they should do that. However, I, I, I fear they're not. They're going to mm. get the, the, the best players they can to play with the, the first team. Uh, and and the, the Olympic team will suffer. And will, that could potentially even keep them from qualifying. Well, we, we don't even know if they will be in the Olympics next year as well. I mean, as Stephen says, it's just hard to imagine what next year is going to even look like right now. I'm, I'm at this point not sure if there's going to be a World Cup in 2022. They might have to delay that. How do you guys judge the, the relative value of the next Olympics and, and the next Gold Cup for Canada? You know, I'm just li- listening to Zach. I guess maybe mm. the counterfactual would be like, what, what, if you took, what if you took like the under-23 group and played them in the Gold Cup instead of the Olympics? Stephen, th- Stephen the thing for me, the Gold Cup is, uh, I think I've mentioned it to these guys before, that I've always thought of it as a popularity contest where the, the, the TV executives all want the U.S. and Mexico to be in the final no matter what, and they don't want any other variants to the thing. So for me, the Gold Cup really has very little value. Uh, I, I put When Zach mentioned the Olympics, the Olympics have way more value to me than the Gold Cup at this point. Yeah. I mean, I, as a, a non-Canadian, the Gold Cup for me doesn't have a high priority. I, if I was a player, I'd rather win an Olympic medal than win a gold cup, I think. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And so the other thing about it is it, it, it not, just, um, not just for the players, but for the excitement in the country, in Canada, you'll get far more engagement mm. and far yes. more connection yeah. to the yeah. people if they were to make the Olympics and do some damage at the Olympics than if probably even if they won the gold cup. That's very true, actually, yeah. Because more folk in Canada watch the Olympics than... I think probably the Stanley Cups maybe got more, but even that, I'm not sure. I'll, I'll, I'll even use this as an example. It was the uh, 20th anniversary this year of them winning the Gold Cup, um, uh, and nobody even mentioned it. And and not only that, I, uh, we, me and Michael were talking about, let's, you know, we'll do a recap of it in June or, or whatever, July. Yeah. 
And then we realized that back then it was played in February. It was February. <laughs> so we go, we already passed the actual 20-year so anniversary, so there's no point even recapping it at this point. Anyway, we'll see what happens. So that's just about it for this episode of the show. But before we go, we want to bring you a new section. It's a feature that we've been running on my Glory Days of Gold podcast. That's my East Fife and Scottish football podcast that we brought out earlier this year. It's called Have You Heard? And it's a section that we're going to use to showcase local musicians, local bands, local artists from both here in Vancouver and also back home from Fife and Edinburgh in Scotland. And promoting local music is something that I've always been very passionate about at AFTN. Back in our fanzine days, we always brought out a kind of 40 to 48 page football fanzine issue. But in addition to that, in a lot of the issues, we brought out a free local music fanzine called Ultracore. Just focusing on a lot of the five bands, many of whom were like good friends of mine, getting out to a lot of gigs, album reviews, interviews, a whole host of things that we did. So when the, the fanzine sort of transitioned to our website, we introduced our arts and entertainment subsection called Broken Down Halo. Unfortunately, over the years, that's kind of gone by the wayside a little bit. So it's something I've wanted to, to kind of bring back and help promote local music for a while. So that's exactly what we're going to do with this Have You Heard section. If anyone listening to this is in a local band or knows of someone in a local band, please get in touch, send me their info, send me some links to their stuff, either by email at aftncanada.hotmail.com or on Twitter at aftncanada. Shoot me a DM there. We're looking to showcase artists from Vancouver and the Lower Mainland and also back in Scotland from Fife and Edinburgh. And we're actually going to kick this section off tonight with a song from 26-year-old singer-songwriter Phil Charletta. He's an East Fife fan. I've known his dad for a number of years. Both his dad, Tony, and Phil have been big supporters of AFTN and Glory Days of Gold over the, the last few years. And we actually interviewed Phil in episode 10 of Glory Days of Gold and played the song you're about to hear on that episode as well, if you want to check that out. And Phil's always been a a talented singer-songwriter and the the lockdown has kind of spurred him into getting his debut single released. It was released at the end of August and you can find it on all media platforms. And his song has garnered a, a lot of publicity and a lot of airplay in the UK it's also been played over in America. As far as I know, this is his first playing on Canadian radio. So delighted to bring you that just now. This is a song called The Sesh. Yeah. 
Sen jag sätter tatta Så sätter jag att det är sträng Kjolkäck, höger fänk When you go out of play It's on Saturday In my body Five singer-songwriter Phil Charletta there with his debut single, The Sesh, out now on all media platforms. The last time I checked, the song had actually reached number eight in the official Scottish singles charts, so a huge well done to Phil. It's a song kind of covering that bad Scottish pastime, really, of just going out for a sesh, an all-day drinking session. That session turns into a weekend of drinking, and sometimes it has bad consequences, 
all stuff that Phil covers there. He's a very talented singer-songwriter. Look forward to hearing more from him in the coming weeks and months. Hope you've enjoyed that one. If you have, maybe look to support Phil by buying the track on Amazon or iTunes or Spotify. Just look under PG Charletta. That's C-I-A-R-L-E-T-T-A. You can also give him a follow on Twitter at PG Charletta as well. And we will be back next week with another Have You Heard selection. But that is it now for this week's episode of the AFTN Soccer Show. Thanks to everyone who has been watching on the stream. Thanks, Stephen, for joining us as well tonight. I mean, I know it must be tough. Your commander-in-chief's not doing too good. It must be tough for you to, to come and do a YouTube stream. But we really appreciate it. So just before we go, let everyone know where we can find you online. You can go first, Stephen. Thank you so much, Michael. And, you know, I, I woke up yesterday and uh, I thought to myself, man, maybe I should have wished for a million dollars before I went to bed too. Right? Okay, well, anyways. Uh, <laughs> no, you can find me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Agen, A-G-E-N. You can find our podcast, Radio Cascadia, for which Michael is a frequent guest, at Radio underscore Cascadia on Twitter. You can also check us out at RadioCascadiaSoccer.com. Thanks so much for having me on tonight, Michael. This has been so much fun. Always a pleasure having you. I was going to cut out the intro, but now that you said something really funny, I'll have to keep that in. Zach, where can they find you online? Uh, for me, it's at Zachary M on Twitter. And uh, yeah, it was also a pleasure just having you join us tonight, Stephen. Thanks for being here. And Steve, where can they find you online? You can find me on Twitter at WhiteCapsBeat. You can find me online, probably looking for some new accommodation for tonight, because my wife seems really annoyed that I tried to get her on a live YouTube stream. Apart from that, you can find me on Twitter at AFT in Canada. Also on AFT and website, if you want to get all the East Fife and Glory Days of Gold stuff and... Give us a follow on Instagram at AFT and Soccer. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel, like, thumbs up, all the stuff that the young kids want you to do to get the algorithms up and stuff. And we're still trying to get to a thousand. We're at 330 subscribers. Um, we're getting there. It's a slow, slow haul. And check out all our stuff away from the numbers, AFTN.ca. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll be back soon. Hope you've enjoyed this. Until next time. Thanks for listening, take care, and mourn the caps. Bye, everyone. Going to your first match is an experience you never forget. The atmosphere of what's going on around the pitch looks beautiful, and you always look and go, wow, I'd love to play here one day. If you get the bug, it's going to stay with you for life.
Hey. <laughs>